Audio conversation with Richard Dolan recorded Sunday, March 2nd, 2014. I interviewed Rich going back, this is a couple years ago now, after his publication of the book A.D. After Disclosure, which he wrote with Bryce Zabel. Uh, It has been on my list to follow up and get a hold of him and talk to him uh, in an interview format, and I've been thinking about it for the last year or so. Uh, It finally happened. We finally put it together. Uh, And I think this is a really good time. Rich entered this uh, very strange uh, UFO sandbox in the role of historian, an academic historian, a researcher, looking into the historical aspects and uh, particularly the government aspects of the UFO phenomenon. I have had a number of conversations with Rich over the years, and I've seen him evolve. He is uh, changing and he is looking very seriously into the more bizarre aspects of the overall UFO phenomenon, uh, including the, uh, well, he's he's always been looking into the abduction lore, but now he is looking deeper into the high strangeness that surrounds all this. This is a long conversation. It's a little bit over two hours long. And what happened was, when we first connected with Skype, boy, we went right into it. Wham! We just started talking, and the conversation was good, and it was interesting, and there was never a sort of formal, hello, this is the beginning of the the podcast. So that didn't happen. Uh, So uh, about 20 minutes in, I was like, whoa, 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 let me just, uh, let me do the uh, hello part, and then we'll, uh, I'll just tack on this stuff to the end. So if you listen all the way through... uh, the, the meat of this interview at the end there's about 20 minutes tacked on to the end and this this is very interesting stuff and it, it's a little bit disjointed but that's okay you know, conversations are like that and then after that uh, there is a 11 and a half minute excerpt from an audiobook of slaughterhouse five read by jose ferrar uh, during this talk uh, rich and i uh, both muse about the memories we have of Slaughterhouse Five, where Kurt Vonnegut talks about uh, how time travel works and how weird time is, and how the aliens on planet Trafalmador see time very differently than we see time. And it was interesting because we both talked about just subtle little aspects of the of the same excerpt from the book, and and we were both pretty much dead on as far as our recollections. And that was when I say book on tape, I mean book on tape physically there's these things i don't know if people remember and they're made of plastic and they have this stuff inside it that twirls on two little spools and there's this physical tape it's very interesting that goes through a mechanism called a tape player uh so i had to plug that into my computer to download this uh, it's beautiful the, the guy who reads it is named jose ferrar he's a puerto rican actor he died i think in the mid 80s uh oh my lord he has a beautiful wonderful glorious voice and it makes the whole listening experience just amazing Let me also add that Richard Dolan just finished a new book, a great big, fat, thick book. The title is UFOs for the 21st Century Mind, and it is an overview, an introduction to the UFO subject, uh, updated. Uh, There really doesn't exist a book similar to that right now, uh, and now it does. I guess this is is the book. You can find that at Richard Dolan Press, all one word, richarddolanpress.com. And let me also add that I uh, just recently spoke at a UFO conference. This was down in Arizona, the International UFO Congress, the 2014 Congress. And my talk was titled Owls, Synchronicity, and the UFO Abductee. 
Now, this was the very first time I had ever spoken on stage and given a presentation. It was 75 minutes long, sort of a big deal for me. What I had done was sent Rich a DVD that he could watch, and, and we talk about that during, during this uh, discussion, during this conversation. And, and I kind of wanted Rich to see uh, my talk beforehand, before this uh, recorded podcast, simply because uh, it, it framed the way my head is, the way I'm seeing this stuff. And it was, it was really interesting because it, it pretty much jived with just how Rich is seeing this stuff. And, and I think that's what, um, uh, what escalated this, what, uh, what helped make this a really lively, energetic conversation. And that's, that's what I aim for when I do these things. This whole interview, along with the excerpt from Slaughterhouse-Five, runs uh, just a little bit over two hours. Please enjoy. Rich, thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Mike, it's, it's my pleasure, absolutely. So glad to be able to do this. Great. Hey, um, so here, we, uh, I, this, is, this is the first question on my list here. This is how I'm going to you know, sort of frame everything we talk about. Um, I want to f- I want to kind of frame what we're discussing here all around the alien abduction phenomena. Now obviously, you know, it's going to lead everywhere and it's we're going to but just like a I don't know, I read a book where the meditation teacher said, you know, like when your mind wanders, you just lead the puppy back to the mat. So if we stray, which is all fine, I'll just I'll make an effort to lead us back to the mat okay. and put it back to the alien abduction phenomena now. There is something about the there's there's what what I am trying to grapple with with this is the very human emotional aspects of this of the abduction stuff because because it baffles me it's that's to me is the most interesting there's you know as well as the high strangeness stuff so um so uh yeah so that's the that's how i want to frame it right i guess that wasn't a question but uh so here's my first question uh i just got back from the conference in in uh Arizona at the Open Minds Conference. Mm-hmm. And it was very interesting because it's the first time I'd ever been a speaker at any conference. And then to be a speaker at what amounts to kind of a big conference, uh, uh, as in the role of the speaker, I really sensed the gulf between the two camps, between the nuts and bolts and the love and light crowd, or whatever you want to call it, between the abductees right. and the folks that do the government research, between um, you know the flowy ladies in their oh, yeah. dresses and their turquoise earrings, and then the folks at MUFON. You know, there's a very um, defined gap between those absolutely and when i and when i was like basically like the little thing said you know i'm going to talk about owl synchronicities and ufo induction abduction and let me tell you man i was like way over on the other side of that continuum and um like i you know it was almost like i it was very almost difficult to interact with anyone except the were you over there with the patchouli wearing oh yeah yeah it was great uh, it was great we had some great conversations and stuff yeah Yeah. so we we were all you know (laughs) so uh but at the same time i tried to do that presentation with as much Oh, I tried to I tried to come across as very grounded. Well, I, I just want to say, I mean, uh, we're we're starting this interview now, but of course, we we had just been chatting a little earlier, and uh, but I'll just say again that your lecture was one of the very best lectures I have ever seen at a at a conference in many many years. I mean, I saw the video of it; I wasn't there, but um, I really loved. I mean, absolutely loved what you had to say. Well, thanks. It was so the, the, that was that makes me feel great, and it was the problem I had was. You know, I kind of set up my, you know, like I sat at the desk here and I kind of, 
you know, like, oh, here, I'll make my, my presentation. And then I can, you know, I even started the PowerPoint. I'm like, oh, that'll be a nice way to like try to wrap my mind around. I'll do the PowerPoint mm-hmm. first. And then I kind of rehearsed the PowerPoint. It was like three hours long. I was like, ooh, that's not going to fly. So, so it was very <laughs> tough, tough for me to, to, uh, to like edit it out. I mean, it was hard work to get that down to there. There was a lot yeah. of important yeah. stuff I felt like I had to leave out. But, um, well, you did it. You did a really important job. I mean, honestly, it was um, one of the most engaging lectures I've, I've ever seen. Well, there's going to come a point quite probably where, you know, I'll be allowed to post that online. And um, presently, just the folks at Open Minds have asked, and yeah. I completely understand that, that I not post it online. Um, uh, there is a 13-minute clip available on my site, just an excerpt from, from uh, you know, kind of give you a flavor of it. But what I was trying to do, for folks that haven't seen it, is I was trying to share my own experiences and my own evolution at the same time to share the what I've been what I've uh, been finding as I research this owl stuff. So it starts off the very beginning as a personal experience. I talk about the owl research in the middle, and then the culmination is is uh, an event that happened uh, where I basically you know, it was personal experience where I had the confirmation experience where uh, like if like I basically cannot longer deny the fact that I I've had UFO contact experiences. Right. So, um, and that's the, that's the, that's the talk in a nutshell, but, um, and all of this stuff is, is online. I mean, I, everything I'm talking about here is shows up as posts on my blog. So, um, no, it was, it was exceedingly well done. Okay. So here's the question. So mm-hmm. what, how, what, you know, so what's up with that huge gulf between those two camps, between the nuts and bolts and the love and light crowd? Will they ever, yeah, well, will I, they ever meet? I mean, is it, I just, you know, so. Well, I, I mean, one of the, I, I've been thinking about this a lot in the last couple of years and uh, I, I'm not here trying solely to plug my new book uh which i don't i don't plug away no no you're you're this is you know that's on my list here promote your book is right here on the uh, checklist here go ahead and you plug away so okay i mean for the last two years i've I've worked on a book it's it's now out there it's called ufos for the 21st century mind the word mind is really important in that title and um i mean essentially it started out as as a project to create like an introduction to ufology for an online kind of university course and i did 12 lectures but i Right from the beginning, I knew I would adapt this to a book. And um, what I ended up doing is I, I, I had a wonderful opportunity to look at the entire subject of UFOs. I mean, the whole thing, the history, the politics. I mean, I've done that for years and years. But there's so much more than the history and politics. There's the encounters that people have. There's the deep encounters. There's the science. What does it mean? that all of these seemingly impossible things are happening is there a way that we can understand it in terms of our science and and so much more as well and i so i've really been trying to look at the totality of this subject and to do my best to uh, you know as robert heinlein once said to grok it right to get the whole thing to just sort of understand the whole thing and uh, i'm certainly not saying that i have succeeded i i don't believe that i fully succeeded but I've, i gave it my effort and in 500 pages i've tried to give what i do feel at least currently is maybe the best single kind of overarching treatment of the whole subject that's out there, at least right now. That was my goal. And one of one of the things that I, I tried to address in this is exactly exactly what you are asking about here. What you have is this rift, an intellectual rift that has emerged in the field of UFO studies that to, to use a very loose terminology for this because it's more than just UFO. It's more than just talking about objects in the sky, and that's part of the rift. So you have the old uh, nuts and bolts MUFON crowd, let's just say, the investigators, 
who have and you know that's really my pedigree um the people who are focused on the as tangible a sighting as you could have you know people seeing craft um and for me looking at military documentation and all of that stuff but you have the high strangeness aspect of this phenomenon let's call it the consciousness aspect of this phenomenon and um you know ufology developed as a discipline really after the Condon Committee in 1969 kind of slapped it down and said, nothing of scientific probative value in the UFO phenomenon. There's nothing worth uh, scientific pursuit. So what did MUFON do and what did KUFOS do and these other groups? They developed what became known as scientific ufology. So all through the 1970s, you get this, this movement, and it was a major intellectual movement in the field to create UFO research on a scientific basis. That is... You know, the, the attitude was, hey, if they're going to smack us down as not scientifically worthy, we will show them and we are going to study this phenomenon in as totally a scientific manner as we can within the limited financial means at our disposal. I mean, to do science really well, you need money, of course, and they didn't have that. But using scientific principles to the extent possible, and that was the goal of scientific ufology. And that did not include crazy studies in consciousness. And that and, and, right and that's you know that is what is being reported by the abductees in a way. Well, absolutely. So so you have that. That's one of the important. But then what you have is the the uh, development of a new age culture. And really, when did when did new age consciousness really start making its headway into into Western culture? I would say, um, really, in a major way. During the, the late 70s and, and onward is when you really start seeing this more and more. It's not that it didn't exist before, but it becomes a really big thing, it seems to me, especially during the 1980s and then further. Um, and that's when we start getting allegedly channeled uh, communications with extraterrestrials. You have Barbara Marciniak talking about her uh, Pleiadians from the late 80s onward and, and a lot of other people. So that's the other strand. And what I've been trying to understand myself is like to what, you know, to what extent is that stuff valid? When people talk about Bashar, the channeler, is, is that valid or not? Um, when people talk about getting a telepathic download from another intelligence, is that valid or not? And, and let me just add that the, the crux of my whole talk was my own telepathic download of seeing a map in my mind's eye. Uh, exactly. Yeah, so exactly. keep going, keep going. Yeah. yeah. So, so this is and, – and one of the things that I've – you know, I mean, my my intellectual instinct from years back had in the past always been to dismiss the latter of those, to dismiss, you know, airy-fairy uh, consciousness as, A, how can I – I can't quantify it. I can't, you, I can't prove it or disprove it. Technically speaking, it's not what is called falsifiable. Like a philosopher would say, this is not falsifiable. Therefore, it's not valid. It may be true. A philosopher would say it may not be true, but I can't call it valid because I can't test it. And in my, my take on this is, but, is what I do is I listen very carefully to the stories shared by all aspects of the phenomena, including right. that I make sure to sit down with the folks that make my right. toes curl in my shoes and listen to their stories. Well, I, I'm with you on this. And so that, that had, <clears throat> I want to emphasize, that had been my position. That, that is not my position anymore. <laughs> That's not where I'm at. I'm, and uh, I've gone through my own changes in the last few years, okay, in thinking this through both intellectually and I would say even at a deeper, more personal level. So what, where I'm at now is um, let's talk about an intellectual transformation. 
you look at the contemporary sciences that allow an open door for consciousness. There are such sciences. I mean, we talk about entanglement. We talk about non-locality. Um, and we talk about, you know, other, other things that are somewhat tangible, like remote viewing, all of which allow for us to say there is something about the structure of our reality and about consciousness itself that, that, that does not fit, you know, your classical uh, 19th century Victorian materialist conception of physics and reality, which I know we're past that, but, but I think most of us... No, where our heads are, where our, you know, we might, be, we might be there in, like, you know, the fact that there are articles on a shelf in an in a academic uh, journal, but, but, we're, but my brain isn't there. You know, no, exactly. And I think and most scientists' brains are not there. Even those who may be aware that, yes, there's this thing called uh, entanglement, but <laughs> it's, it's another thing for our, for our minds to really to think along those ways. And so I think most of us are kind of like an advanced version of 19th century materialism, I, I think. And, and I'm, I'm sort of like not pretending to be a scientist, so I'm content to call that magic. Yeah, cool. I mean, that's, that's perfectly valid the way you're doing that. So uh, where was oh so so on one level I'm looking at I've been looking at contemporary scientific trends and theories and ideas that allow for consciousness to be a valid subject let's say of ufology and I am on that basis alone I am totally convinced that that's legit that that's and that's necessary. It's not just legitimate. It's necessary for us to have an appreciation of the mind, of my mind, of your mind, of the human mind's interaction with this phenomenon as, a, as the core, maybe the core element of where all of this is meaningful and all, all of this is happening. And then on a personal level, as I, I was just saying to you earlier, but I'll just say here, um, I, I certainly would not pretend that I've gone through a, a – profound spiritual transformation but i will tell you i've been doing now i've been doing kundalini yoga for the last year twice a week which you know not every day i have noticed it's it's what kundalini does is it's it's not just a physical discipline it's very physically demanding and i love doing it i absolutely love it but it is a mental and it is a spiritual discipline so it's been very good for me to to do this and i've also been uh in the last few months really getting into understanding meditation again. I've been listening to a series of lectures on meditation and I guess we could say enlightenment and so forth. So all of this has been a very positive effect on me personally and I will just say that I had a, um, I had a meditative experience in which I was able, this is crazy, but I know this happened. I was able to see and observe my deepest thought processes in a way that I have never really been able to do before. And what it what is and I'm still trying to process through all of this. I'm not really done thinking about this. I think I can do it again. It's when you learn how to go deep, you can you can try to keep going deep, I think. But what I see is there are layers of our consciousness that exist. So I have existed, I function on that outermost layer of our consciousness, which is uh, our five senses, our you know, uh, our five physical senses, you know, sight and hearing and touch and so on, uh, have helped me create my worldview. The, uh, the culture in which I'm living has helped to create that worldview. 
and all of those neural pathways functioning on on that level. I mean, it's an incredibly sophisticated layer. It's an incredibly rich layer, and um, and that's really the the only layer that I normally need in my in my ordinary reality. But there's layers below that, and um, that's what I was able directly to experience. So what that's telling me is that there's these other. This is so confused, so hard for me to discuss this. Yeah, and that's why I think you have to use metaphor and you have to use mythology, and because it because it is, it's challenging to try right. to treat the stuff pragmatically because it it falls apart when you try to, you know, keep going, keep going. Yeah, yeah. But I get what you're saying. Um, yeah. So I I think like we all of I mean we all know we have a subconscious mind. Okay. So but what I was fortunate in being able to do recently is to almost see that subconscious mind and experience it consciously. It was an odd experience. It was, I guess you could say it's a mystical experience. Maybe that's, that's as good a word as any. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's, uh, and uh, I think that I had that and it was a, it was profound for me. So, um, it's given me an extra insight into how my own mind works, how our minds work, because what happened to me is certainly not unique to me. I think this is, this is how we're structured this is how we're set up. And, um, and then we, I can infer that these others, these other beings, they're structured in their own way, which is different from how we're structured. So, um, but they're aware of us. They are able to uh, reach us in their own way. But as we were saying before, they, I think they have to do it in, in a limited way so as not to be too much for us not to be overwhelming but maybe they have other ways like they have uh, created I, I think it's entirely possible that they've created certain types of life forms to to work for them like their own avatars that that might be able to interact with us in this reality when when travis walton talks about his abduction experience as you well know he had direct recollection of non-humans and humans on that craft or wherever he was as then that shows up with a lot of accounts. Yeah, that's very normal. So, so what are what's going on there? I mean, my feeling is that these the humans are are they really are human? They're like us. They they come from Earth, but they're I think they're totally adapted and enhanced, and that culturally they have nothing in common with us at this point. So that um, they they are alien for all intents and purposes, um, even though physiologically they're very closely related to us. And I think that they they were probably bred. I think they were probably enhanced and uh, adapted by whatever meta-intelligence is involved in this whole thing. So I think they're using those humans kind of as avatars or as their own little worker bees, advanced, sophisticated ones, but nonetheless as their workers. And these other, these other creatures that Travis saw uh, could be the same thing. Or it could be that they are the original extraterrestrial race and they create their own humans to work with us. I, I, I mean, there's all kinds of possibilities here. But I think that some of the beings that people are encountering, like I think, I think we have to really consider the fact that there are all types of possibilities of enhancing and even creating artificial beings. As well as all the hybrid stuff that, that shows up, the, yeah. the uh, hybridization process, which seems to be the core of a lot of folks' abduction research. But they're right, exactly. And but their level of intelligence that the the meta intelligence is operating at is just so vastly beyond, and, and not just beyond, but different. 
I mean, may, maybe that's a better way of putting it. They, I think they are beyond in that they have certain sophistications that we prob- probably lack. But more than being beyond, I think it's just a totally different kind of intelligence. And so, um, you know, and one of the things Whitley Strieber once said that really resonated with me was um, he said, you know, talking or when you're face to face with these creatures or mind to mind, really, he said, you feel totally naked. You feel totally exposed. And and like thinking that you could relate to them. It's almost like thinking like you're well, you and I talked about this, that your dog could relate to us. Exactly. Yeah. Like the, I, I always think of like, do the dogs like go and have like a conference and have like, a, you know, all the smart dogs get together and they all sit at a conference and said, okay, we're going to like crack this thing. And like, what does good dog really mean? You know, or, yeah. you know, so. do, do when they leave the house. Or you, yeah. Uh, where do they go when they leave the house? Right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> right. They, I thought I, that was actually, that was a brilliant insight by you. But the other thing about a dog is like when a dog's cowering, when a dog knows that he or she's done something wrong and they're cowering before their person. Uh, Whitley's implication was that's really that's like us in front of them like we can't really handle I had another interesting conversation with a a, a man who I, I think is an abductee and he's very insightful very smart man and he says they disrupt our they disrupt our minds like they whatever they have and whatever they do is disruptive to our field that was his word our field and I think that there's a lot to that so that they have to – they deal with us to the extent that they do. It has to be indirectly through metaphor, through symbolism. And you know, one of the things is so what is it with you? Like they're – they've identified you. They identified Natasha. And, and, and I, the and larger this question is what's the significance? Is, yeah, I mean the sort of alien love bite thing. I mean Natasha and I would be pretty straight about that's the way our relationship played out. You know, right out right. of uh, the uh, Eve Lorgan handbook there. Um, and very yeah, very, oh, so complicated. Um, so I don't know if we, have we strayed. Oh, we're straying all over the place. This I, is great. I, I got no problem with this. So. No, yeah. So if I, and I'm just so. Um, oh, I've wrote some stuff down here. Now, now we're, we're <laughs> ten steps past the stuff that I wrote down. But uh, uh, so this is what I brought up earlier, and I can't remember if this was the thing that I'll tack on to the end or not, but I'll just say it again here, and folks might have to listen to it twice. But there is something that occurs. It has happened to me four very distinct times mm-hmm. where I have felt a sensation. One time it was when I sat up in bed and looked out at my window. I was living in Maine. It would have been 1993 in January or February. I looked out saw five gray aliens standing in the snow or actually walking in the snow outside my window they were backlit by a bright light but the more interesting thing for me is that I dismissed it as a dream which is understandable but the reason I dismissed it as a dream is because the sensation that I was dealing with was dreamlike but it wasn't like any ordinary dream it was as if it was an unusually vivid it was hyper vivid very quiet it felt like the normal mind chatter of, of, you know, like, oh, you know, do I, you know, oh, I have to balance a checkbook. That kind of stuff whoosh, was gone. Like it was hyper-focused, crystal clear, totally silent, um, and, and like words, words are going to fall apart trying to, you know, like this kind of, you know, the difference between a, like a regular lens and a wide-angle lens. It felt like I was seeing the world through a, through a wide-angle lens. It felt like my ability to perceive was you know enhanced in a way that that didn't wow. that doesn't make so okay. that that's a that may or may not 
whatever. That's that I'm fighting for an explanation in that. That's yeah, that's yeah. partially accurate. But um, so I've had this four times total. One of the other times was with the thing you saw in the presentation. There where I was floating up in that you know that elevator in up feeling tent. as I floated in the tent. Right. Um, now. And did uh, um, let me just ask you because this you did discuss this in your lecture. So did Natasha say that she saw you floating? I no, she never that. saw me floating. While I was while I was so so uh, I'll, I'll tell this very quick. That is in the, I'll put it in the links. There is a story you can click to. It's on um, I think it's called Irrational Fear in the Tent. Uh, so you know I was floating. I, all of a sudden I was up in uh, some white realm. As I was floating up, I said I had this 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 that that uh, altered state of consciousness. I'm trying to describe. Then I said to myself very clearly, I said I have to remember this. I have to remember this. I have to remember this. Mm-hmm. I entered a white realm. It was like a you know it was like a floating in a cloud. You know there was no. It wasn't like a. I have no memories of being on board a craft. And then I started saying, Am I on a Am I on a table? Am I on a table? Am I on a table? And somewhere in there, the next thing I remember. Mm-hmm. And I and I'm quite convinced this didn't happen, but this is the way it plays out in my mind. I'm convinced it did not happen like this, but this is how it plays out in my mind. Natasha, I heard her voice in her German accent said, "Mike, you're floating," and ah, it almost felt like she okay. was like she was like almost like she tapped me on the shoulder, you know, like Mike. And then okay. I like felt like I was sucked right back into the sleeping bag in the tent. Um, okay. So yeah, so she, uh, so that was that was in a, you know, that's the, that is as close as I can describe you know so the events a, either a, a hyper vivid dream again um, or an altered or, state or of reality that somehow yeah, exactly and that's what is you know so so that is what is being i mean so meditation is an altered state of reality uh shamanic initiations have an altered state of reality um uh, there's you know outer body experiences have an altered state of reality so there's this stuff that you know a near-death experience is an altered state of reality so there's these things that that parallel and sometimes sort of fit, and then sometimes don't seem to fit as well. The the abduction lore. So, uh, and actually taking uh, mushrooms. This is very strange. I've I've run into a bunch of folks who have taken mushrooms, and then seen owls. Like basically, I, you know, you know, I have one story of people sitting around basically a campfire outside. They're all tripping on mushrooms, and a great big owl lands right in the middle of the circle of them. Oh my god! So what? I mean, so. You know, the, and it was a real owl. It wasn't. Yeah, it was I mean, they owl. all said. I mean, I've, this is hard. You know, how? What do you yeah, like? Yeah, you know, yeah. you're. That's the same thing. That's the same. Is it like? Was that? You know, did, were you really on a table? You know, that kind of thing. How? How do you answer right. those questions? Right. So, uh, but you know, so the the mushroom owl thing is, you know, has a has a link that I'm seeing. Um, but so so, I'm not sure where I started on this. But the the altered state of consciousness that gets described. By abductees, I feel I have tapped into it four separate times that I can remember, mm-hmm. and so that is. I mean, so the stuff is so fleeting and so foggy and so challenging to try to describe. Unlike taking the measuring stick out into the yard and measuring the burn mark where the flying saucer landed, right. you can get pragmatic information to that. You can look right at the little numbers on the uh, measuring on the measuring tape, and you can write that down in a in a in a journal, and it'll be numbers, and you can quantify well, that to other things. But here's here's the thing. So um, I, I'm sorry for interrupting. Oh, you. go go go. But. Um, we're talking about these two strands of thinking. So you got the nuts and bolts crowd, and you've got the um, love and light crowd. Yeah, the love and light crowd, and you know the nuts and bolts crowd is dealing with purely the layer of the outer consciousness. You know our logic, 
And really what you see is the love and light crowd is dealing with, with that lower layer of consciousness. They're not interested in the, the upper layer of consciousness. They're interested because they sense, I think they know, that there is an intelligence operating at that, at that deeper level, and that's what's interesting to them. The other stuff probably boring to them that and that, that this is you're describing right? here and I'm going to look up something at the Maureen uh, Ellsbury who, who works at mm-hmm. Open Minds yeah. um, she quoted something here I got to find it here I got all these notes um yeah, so this she was quoted in the newspaper, and this was so apparent. Um, Colonel John Alexander was one of the speakers at the yeah. conference, and let me tell you, the Love and Light crew—they were like, "He's a government spy. He's like a disinformation <laughs> agent. You know, he's like, you know, sent from the reptilian overlords here to yeah. disrupt us." And and um, and there was a, another fellow up there who spoke about. Uh, you know, there's some scientists. It was very scientific leaning in, in the list yeah. of, of, of the things. So, right. And this is, so this, I'm going to read this directly. This is a direct quote from a newspaper article. I think it was like the Phoenix Times or some Phoenix okay. magazine. And uh, they asked her about, um, it was actually quite a long article, and they dug in some depth about, you know, the, the, the conference. So Maureen says, so Maureen says, there is some backlash because we do have a lot of scientists speaking. I'll have people come up and say, why did you have this person? We already know extraterrestrial life is out there. We know it's abducting people. Why do you have this guy trying to convince us that life exists in outer space? Mm-hmm. And now I completely understand that sentiment, and I could see how it would be frustrating to a, to a conference uh, organizer to have that, uh, uh, you know, these this two divergent camps kind of like yeah. you know, clashing. Well, I mean, they're both necessary, though. I mean, honestly, because... Like, and I agree. <clears throat> I agree. They're, they are both necessary. You know, the... the um, <clears throat> The upper layer, the the nuts and bolts, and the, the scientists coming in there. If uh, there, there's actually two aspects of um, of the life of an intellectual. It seems to me. So one is the explorer, and one is the teacher. So if you're an explorer or a student, you don't really need to worry about explaining to other people. You're on your journey. And you're trying to figure it out, and you and if you find other like-minded people along the way, so much the better. Yes, good. But the ultimate goal for that kind of a person is to learn and to explore, and just to dive in. So, you know, if they've gotten to a point where they feel they they have a, a grasp of this, why the hell would they want to listen to some astrophysicist talk about how much life there is probably in the universe? They don't give a shit about that. Now, on the other hand, there's another equally responsible way of doing this. That's the mode of the teacher. In my own life, I, I can see, like, I'm both of those. I know that I'm both of those. I mean, I, I, am, a, I am an explorer, but I know that I'm, I personally am a teacher. And what does a teacher have to do? The teacher realizes that there's a lot of people out there in this world, and they, they have a hunger. They don't even, they're not even aware a lot of times that they have this hunger, but they have a hunger to learn more. They have a hunger because they know that there's something important about their worldview that's totally missing. They're not getting it. And, and then they, they encounter this topic, this topic which we loosely call UFOs, which we loosely call ET, whatever. But it's so much more than that. And they encounter this topic, and it's like this oh shit moment that comes on in there, and the big light bulb comes on in their head, and they realize, my God, there's this, reality and and it's the job of a good teacher all right to be able to reach out to those people and to 
and you have to bring them in by baby steps. You can't you cannot throw this whole subject out to the great great many 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 people out there who are totally ignorant about it. They don't know. They don't understand this, but they they have that hunger. So and Owen, need- let me just let me just say, I, and I, I yeah, thought I was that was very much on my mind as I put together my talk, and I and I kept that in the forefront that I was going to be juggling some complex ideas, and yeah. I had to present it in a way that was smooth. You succeeded. I mean, you you absolutely succeeded in what you were trying to do because you really went right on the edges, the right on the edges of exploration of this topic. I mean, you broke into a lot of new ground, new ideas. Well, I mean, in a way that I thought was responsible. Yeah, other people have tapped into this, but I think the owl thing in itself is something that that um, other people, you know, you'll find that in a paragraph or two in all kinds of books. Well, you can uh, say other people have done it, but honestly, they what you did was was well was well beyond. It was much more sophisticated to me. And it was just better presented. Well, thanks. That's, thanks. My, yeah. that's my take on okay, it. Okay, keep going, keep going. I'm not sure where we were. So, well, I think, so when we're talking about this divide, this rift, it seems to me that they're, they're, both, they're both valid ways of looking at this phenomenon. And it's not like one invalidates the other. Although you have the nuts and bolts people who try to invalidate the love and light. And there's a lot of the love and light stuff that is just goofy ass, doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, just really is loose headed. Some of this, I just have to, I shake my head and I think, you know, really. The well, that's the, that's. Up. I mean, the, whatever. There's some little thing where you know someone said, you know, uh, how come 98 percent of all science fiction is crap? And then the the answer was, well, 98 percent of everything is crap. You know, I mean, well, yeah, exactly. That's, yeah, exactly. So, so you have to. That's the job. Of, of popular music is and every know, yeah, So we, and I'm sure yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of nuts and bolts uh, books on the shelf about UFOs that I that don't resonate with me in the slightest. So, um, and some yeah, do strongly. Absolutely. So. Um, so you know you have the, the nuts and bolts that that has dismissed a lot of the love and light stuff, and um, and I myself have, you know find some of it very frustrating. On the other hand, as I, I'm trying to explore in my own mind and in in my latest book, um, UFOs for the 21st Century Mind, I I have never been able to dismiss it because I I am convinced that there's a core of of something very critically important in this. And um, I'll tell you this, I mean I. I'm not done thinking this through, and and um, some of the thoughts that I'm expressing with you here, I, I'm probably going to find a way to to put into a, a revised version of that book, and I'll just republish it, a new edition. That's so funny. The books with the book's been out what a month now or something, and you're already. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is, I, I'm this way with everything. Like after I did AD after disclosure with Bryce Zabel, literally within six months of that, I thought, oh my god, I would really. I have so many new ideas on this, <laughs> and I want to explore it. So my mind doesn't shut off on a subject just because I, I, I did a you know study of it. And the same is with this. This is an ongoing thing. It's an ongoing exploration. So, uh, but yeah, I think the two the two uh, roads, as it were. Are um, they? They seem totally different, but they really are looking at the same phenomenon, just from a different, you know, a different part of the mind. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, and I and I, that's my critical. take too. Yeah, they're both important. Both are valid. You got to yeah. go out and measure the burn mark in the backyard and write it down in a little book. And then you, right. but at the same time, you have to go in and talk to the witness yeah. and ask them, you know, how has your spirituality yeah. changed? Have you and, had and any psychic only- experiences? Totally, totally, totally. And it's not only studying the nuts and bolts aspect so that we can convince other people that, gee, there's something going on here. I mean, that in and of itself is important. It's important for us to understand what the hell's going on in our, on that layer of reality. But there is this inner working 
there's this it's I keep calling it a meta intelligence it's a, it's a higher intelligence that somehow operates and they somehow understand our minds better than we do I think um, and they understand the minds of creatures they can I really believe that they can manipulate these creatures as well as us yeah no that doesn't yeah, yeah that's that I, I take that and that that's given. where we get the yeah. love bite phenomenon you know they um, I think the love bite phenomenon I, I agree I think it's there's real. There's, it's real. Uh, how widespread? I, I couldn't tell you, but I think it's real enough. Oh my and, God! Um, I've heard some stories. Yeah, for sure. And, and you and I privately have talked about some of this. So there's that's going on, and um, so it just shows me that they. Yeah, I used to have. A, I had a theory a few years ago to kick this around, and I still think it, there's a lot to it. It's like that they play us like a like a video game or like a board game, and like you know, one intelligence will say to another. Okay, um, well, I've got Dolan for these next five years. Oh, you got Cleland? Okay, good. So let's see if we can get them to have an interesting interaction over the next uh, period of time. How about on this date, and how about there, and how about over there? Okay, that sounds good. You know, or, you know, we'll have this one uh, meet this other woman, and they'll, they'll have their own little intrigue, and they'll learn from each other in this one way, because that's what they need to learn from each other, and then they'll go on, on their separate paths and, and do whatever. And um, it's almost like, you know, they're playing us. You know, what like you're we're, describing we're like is kind game. of is kind of the uh, the the cosmic um, kismet. I mean, you're talking about like you know the mystical fate. You know that. So so I'm at a point now where I'm uh, like, what's happened with this owl research is I'm I've learned that, or for myself, I've learned that the box, the umbrella, the meta phenomena is bleeds out into you know the the role of the shaman. You know, the shaman would have to answer the owl questions that the nuts and bolts researcher couldn't ask. The uh, the right. mystic would have to answer the questions about fate that that uh, um, Eve Lorgan couldn't answer. So you know, so there's there's you know, it's tapping into all these things that have existed throughout time. I mean, this is the stuff of of every you know fable and and every myth is is somehow. You know, interact with this. You know, one way to look at it was say that you know that every fable and every myth was created by you know the ancient aliens, which I don't think was true. Maybe some of them were, but uh, so so there's these. Are they using fate? You know, do they have like a little knob on their you know in their UFO that they can just turn? Okay, let's just turn the fate knob up a few more notches here for this one person and see how it plays out. Um, yeah. Or they may know exactly how it's going to play out, but they're using a a a uh, framework, a right. phenomenon that's already in place. Well, yeah, I, I like what you're uh, what you're saying there. And again, in in my uh, newest book, I mean, I I try to understand scientifically, uh, or at least to to grasp the fact that our own conception, of course, of space and time, as I think, we, and we all know this intellectually, but we don't usually get it in our our day to day grasp of reality. But our conception of space and time is obviously a function of the way that our minds are set up so our minds are designed to perceive reality spatially and temporally that's different from saying space and time exist objectively they and now they they i'm not saying that they don't exist objectively but i guess what i'm thinking is our perception of space and time is simply that it is how we perceive space and time think of other creatures think of something like an insect an insect is not going to be able to perceive space and time the same way that we do uh and nor is and nor probably is uh you know a uh tribesman in the jungles of borneo 
No, indeed. Right. So to say nothing of another species. So if there's another species, a meta-intelligence that's operating, how hard is it to um, perceive that they have a grand vision of of the dimension of time in a way that we, in our perception, are not normally able to get. So when you're talking about fate or destiny or timelines or anything like that, is it really impossible to re- to think that they have um, have the ability to to move us around on that or to interact with that in a way that we can't? Here's here's a question I, for you. I think they can. How far are you from New York City? Um, six hour drive. I'm I'm in upstate New York in Rochester. So okay, I can get okay. There so here's, a, here's I just miles. I just asked you mm-hmm. how far you were, and you gave me a time. That's right. I, I mean, I just I think that's so funny because the correct answer would be like you know three hundred miles. I don't know what it is, but um, but that's not what you answered. It was so that to me is I, I just think that that uh, I always am aware of that. I don't know why, but um, so anyway, you did perfect. You I, I quizzed you there, and you, you gave exactly the answer I wanted to make my point. So. Well, good. <laughs> right. So um, I think they they get time in a way that we get space. Like we we can measure distances in space, and we can navigate our way through space. And is it really hard for us to imagine that they can navigate their way through space and through time, and perceive time in a way that that we're not we don't quite get? Well, I mean, we you and I mean, I sitting here at my desk don't get it, but I can read Douglas Adams, you know, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe, where they play, yeah. they just have a delightful time, or the author plays with all that stuff, and it doesn't matter. Like I'm, I'm, I'm swept along on a on a story and a mythology. Yeah. So that's where I find the best analogies don't come from from uh, you know, tr- you know, like you grit your teeth and you're stuck, you know, you can't get past it, yeah. but then you 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 know you read something like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and it's, it, it plays out effortlessly. Well, I remember as a, a much younger person way many, many years ago, I read a Kurt Vonnegut book and I'm trying to remember which one it was. Um, it wasn't, maybe it was Slaughterhouse-Five. It might have been that one. Or where they do the thing where there's a, the, like they, the, they have the analogy of putting the person on the train track and bolting his head in place and that's how humans think of time? No, no. I was thinking of time as a mountain range and I, I'm sure that it was a Vonnegut um, perception but it was a similar type of thing like he i think he was really interested in our perception of time that had to be a, one of his themes but he gave an image i should go back and reread this he gave an image of of time as a kind of mountain range that that could be perceived all in in its entirety in its totality where normally we don't do that normally we're yeah like we're on the train we're on like a certain timeline but but it's and I, I had to be a teenager when i read this but he gave this idea of kind of stepping at stepping up and seeing time as a um the way we perceive space and you know normally we don't we don't do that but can these other beings do that and therefore able to um to see timelines or to see our interaction with time in a way that we just can't the the uh, the analogy of this I'm remembering something and I think I'm doing this pretty clearly the Trafalmadorians that took Billy Pilgrim to the other planet Trafalmador mm-hmm. uh, they you know tried to talk to him and they couldn't you know they were and they, there was like this uh, bunch of paragraphs where they were laughing at poor Billy Pilgrim and they were like this is how he thinks of time this is so funny he thinks of time uh-huh. like you're on a railroad track you're on a single car you're you're 
you're standing there at the front of the car on the railroad track going only one direction and your head is bolted in place on some sort of you know uh, structure so you can't turn your head right or left so you can only look straight ahead and that's how we humans see time and then the you know the trafalmadorians yeah. were like laughing like ha 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 isn't it okay, funny I'm humans i have to reread that book again because uh, i think it it really I've, I've read it i listened to it on tape recently so um ah good 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 okay um so anyway i, th- I think we're, we're on to like a very comparable way of thinking of this and it just it seems to me that we both we both read uh, uh slaughterhouse five when we were teenagers so yeah we have that going yeah us, right so. right um i haven't reread it that's that's why i'm so fa- uh hazy on it but um that we're dealing, we are encountering an intelligence that is just, you know, so so much of a challenge for us to grasp. And, um, but I do think, like, the nature of our encounter with this is a tremendous. This is where I love what the love and light crowd is saying, because our encounter with this intelligence has unbelievable potential for unlocking something new and different or something deep about what we are a spiritual awakening a kundalini awakening yeah i mean these are the things that 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 ufo abductees will say they'll say you know i got abducted by a ufo the next thing i know i started channeling i had a spiritual awakening i now run a little shop in sedona where i where i do uh psychic readings i mean this is right i mean i'm using it that's a caricature obviously but all those things are true Yes, exactly. And and so I think that's that is an integral part of this phenomenon as well. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't a dark element of this phenomenon. Um you know, I keep trying to to square that circle myself. Like what what exactly are we are we encountering? Uh there are people who are having experiences that are utterly positive transformative at least it seems to be. Others who can't seem to process this and it's really troubling to them and and um you know i too have i've interviewed many uh people have had experiences and not all of those experiences seem to be ones that these people are glad that they had Ooh, yeah you know and um and and one in which there's a definite kind of mind control operating i, I don't know if i told you i've, I've told the story once or a couple of times and and uh, it was a guy who's a little a couple of years older than us he's in his probably his mid late 50s now truck driver you know one of the regular dudes in this world and he's um told me an experience what happened which happened 30 years ago to him he was living in a condo he was living the high life you know going out partying uh, having girlfriends and doing whatever and he had a married couple that he was friends with who lived in the same complex as him and um he used to hang out at their house a lot and and um, one night they decided they were going to go fishing at night and they brought a fourth person, a friend of theirs. So it's four people in a boat. This is in Ohio. I don't know if I, did I ever tell you the story? No, it's the first time. Keep going. So um, so they're out there, and it's they've got a, like a six-pack of beer. That's their – I mean, no one's drunk. They're just hanging out, you know. And he said, we were watching this bright object in the sky, and it kept moving in an unusual way. Like, what the hell is that? And then it started getting closer and then closer and then closer. And then he said, the next thing – that I remember we were not in the boat we were on the shore we were barefoot we were looking up at this low craft and we were screaming hysterically they're coming to get us and the craft then departed it flew off 
they were on the opposite side of the lake, so they had to get back into the boat, row across the lake to get to the van to go home. They discovered they were missing more than two hours. Two to three hours were had gone. And the guy who's t- telling me this then told his companions, this, this to me is key. He says, we are not supposed to talk about what happened. We are absolutely not supposed to talk about this. And if any of you ever talk about this, I will call you a liar and I will never be your friend again. I'll never talk to any of you again. We are not supposed to talk about this. And then he said to me, what prompted me to say that? And I think it's reasonable to infer that, well, whatever seemingly took them for two plus hours prompted him to say that through whether some kind of form of mind control hypnosis, whatever. And he's not an isolated instance of that, by the way. Uh, and, and I will say that you said this all. happened about 30 years ago? Yeah. Now, my sense is, I'll figure this is, I mean, my sense is that present day, I'm just going to be purposely kind of provocative here, but uh, yeah. uh, that they would, at the end of this thing, they would turn to one another and they would say, like, I'm going to go home and start a blog and, you know, and tell everyone in the world this. I think that's where it's uh-huh. at right now. Or they, you know, I'm going to write a book, or I'm going to I'm going to start my own YouTube channel. Uh, so, you know, that's that, what I'm finding at this point is that you, that, you know, what once was don't you dare talk about it is now good grief we can't shut them up. Yeah, maybe that's, that's a little it, like, bit. Perf- I mean, I'm obviously well, being purposely him, kind of heavy-handed there, but for this guy, when he was telling me the story 30 years later, he, first of all, I was the first person that he talked to about it. He said, he said, I've gone, I've lived with this for 30 years, and. Um, I once had a conversation about it, he said, like with a girlfriend like 10, 15 years ago, and he said that was it. He said, I've not talked to anyone else. And when he was telling me, he was almost hyperventilating. He was um, – I remember I had, I had to slow him down many times because he was getting so worked up. It was a stressful experience for him to relive. And I've, I've had this happen with other individuals I've spoken to. Men, women, um, one woman who's was a science writer, a very sophisticated lady, smart, 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 smart. And she was recounting something that happened to her 40 years before that she had never spoken to anyone. And the same thing. Uh, she was having heart palpitations. She was really, I mean, truly spazzing out, freaking out in the process of telling me this. She was finally able to get the whole thing out, but it was a lot of work for her. Well, I'm going to share something that um, mm-hmm. Kim Carlsberg has talked about publicly. She's talked mm-hmm. about, in essence, meeting her hybrid child. She's spoken about right. this on stage and on podcasts, yeah. so I'm not sharing anything that she's not already shared. Um, I was at mm-hmm. her house uh, after the conference. This would have been last year. And um, she had kind of hinted that she'd had this thing, and it happened to her house. And she's like, oh, I'm too busy. Like, oh, I'm tired. I'm not going to talk about right. it. And, I, and then finally she said, oh, what the hell? I'm going to tell you the whole story. So she took me out on the back porch, and she said, I stood here, and then the craft was right there. And then I went in. Yeah. I wanted to get my camera, so I walked from here to the closet here. And then I had to find my camera, but then I came back out, and then the craft was, you know. So she had it. I mean, so I was, like, walking back and forth with her in the spot where it happened. And yeah. and uh, now there's one detail that is so bizarre. No one in the world would have made this up, where she said, okay, now we're standing here the craft is over there. She kind of points. There's a, she has a back deck on this cute yes. little house she has in Sedona, and, and it's a little suburban mm-hmm. neighborhood with homes right up next to her. And, and uh, she pointed to you know where the craft was, and she said, and then over here, a reptilian in like a uniform fell from the sky and was falling, plummeting to earth, and it almost hit the edge of the like she pointed to like the uh, the banister on the little deck, and it almost hit the banister, and then it disappeared. And she, that was like one little detail. And then she said, you know, that she went inside. And when she went right. inside again, there was her 
What, her hybrid child. Which, yeah. Her, her, who, was, who was a fully grown adult. Yeah. Like basically a 30-year-old young man. Yeah. And basically looked like a, like her, you know, uh, mm-hmm. blue eyes, blonde hair. And she sat down next to it. She telepathic communi- you know, communicated some stuff. He said, you know, Mom, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? Through to telepathy. And that kind of took her by surprise. And I can't remember how it played out. But eventually she was sitting on the couch alone. And she didn't. Now, here's what's interesting. Now, Kim Carlsberg is one savvy person she is i mean she knows how to you know like which yes. is which i'm gonna say is like the, the the problems i have with the uh the the um sort of new age crowd is that um they lack just certain simple social skills like they'll stand in doorways and have conversations at ufo conferences <laughs> you know little simple like little simple things like that <laughs> so buttonholed uh, many times yeah yeah so so but uh uh you know kim's not like that she's very savvy she's you know right. she's yeah very skilled socially. She, she's one of my closest friends and and she told me that story uh, shortly after it happened, so yeah, and, and I'm, I'm glad she told you. So now here's the thing. Yeah, she was almost screaming that story at me. It was like she was talking, and I just let her do it because I mean, there's no way I could interrupt her mm-hmm. when she got rolling. Mm-hmm. And she was talking so loud that it left me like I mean, I was like, you know, it was. I she didn't need to take a lie detector for me, man. Like nobody would would react this that strongly I mean, to a to a to an impression or if she was trying to lie she wouldn't yeah. have done that you know like man, I, she- I would just say this and uh, and you know this because you know Kim and I know this because I know Kim but people who are listening who may not know Kim they have to understand Kim I absolutely I I know her and I love her and I know I don't think I don't believe I don't suspect I know that she is a truthful person she's absolutely truthful and um, and she has gone through something really bizarre and she you know she's very very smart but it, it's a challenge for her to process it's a challenge for anyone absolutely I and mean, she's the one i mean she's you know as as much as any person on earth she's had like the the you know the onslaught of these experiences so when, when she told me this uh it was on the phone fo- over the phone um uh, i thought you met your hybrid son i mean what what struck me you know part of me didn't want to believe it i just thought this is this is crazy but it was kim talking to me and i know kim and i've i've had a lot of one-on-one time with kim um and i there's no question in my mind that i believe her her sincerity and i i believe her sanity so where am i left i'm left with with believing her as am i oh absolutely yeah. unquestionably yeah. Yeah. In my sense is, you know, how to, you know, so my, like the the thing that I always wonder is, is like, if there was a video camera videotaping all this, what you know, would what happened, would it have right? seen? Would it have seen something different than what she perceived? I don't know yeah, what that exactly. might mean, you know? Well, one thing I, I didn't ask her, maybe you got a sense of this or not, I don't know, but like, was she in what we would call an altered state of consciousness when she had this experience? Or was she in, in the kind of ordinary consciousness that we're, you and I are having right now? And I'm I'm I I don't want to answer for her, but I the way I remember it is she's in the ordinary conscious that you and I are in. That was my sense. Yeah. That was also my sense. Yeah. As opposed just... to the way I was when I let's say I was have that memory of floating in the tent, which was non ordinary yeah. state of right. consciousness. Right. Exactly. Which makes it very easy for me to just dismiss it as a dream. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. In her case, though, that that wasn't so, and uh, that was also my sense. And I'm I'm guessing if she were here, she would probably say the same thing. Yeah. So. Uh, Hey, um, yeah. <laughs> okay, no, this is great. I got this is like, conversations I prefer to. We're having a great. Con- I'm loving this conversation. Okay, so 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 Elaine Douglas died uh, just uh, a few months yes. ago. Yeah, 
I was actually quite close to Elaine. I met her, I think, well, i got to remember this off the top of my head. I think it was in 2008. I met her just, mm-hmm. I was, I had heard Karen uh, right. interview her on Through the Keyhole. Right. And um, and I heard that interview, and she said she was from Moab, Utah, and I was driving through Moab, and I was like, just looked her up in the phone book, and I called her up, and went right to her door, and I called her ahead of time and said, I'm going to show up, and we, and uh, so, and then, ever, and I travel back and forth through Utah a lot, and so I would always make an effort to try to see her, so I've spent a lot of time at her house. That's that's great. And um, now she wrote, uh, now she was, whew, I mean, that was, I mean, she was um, passionate is an understatement. Um, she was, she had obsessively passionate and would not suffer fools. No, she was the most no bullshit kind of person that, uh, this field has seen in a long time. And I don't necessarily agree with all her conclusions. I mean, she had a bleak outlook on this stuff and, um, and I, like I'm a little more agnostic. I mean, I've heard the bleak stories and I've heard the love and light stories and I've heard the mm-hmm. dark stories and I so like I just I'm trying to wade my through this minefield and and not uh get dragged down in one one yeah. you know one avenue or another. Now, so so this is and I uh, she posted something in the Mufon Journal and um well, uh, there's two points to this. I'll I'll just run the first one by you first. She basically says approximately at least 50% of the people who see a UFO are abductees. And she says this after 25 years of doing, um, you know, basically boots on the ground uh, Mm -hmm. research as a state director in both Utah and then uh, what would be obviously a state director, but Washington, D.C. So, um, right. And and her, her sense was when she interviewed people who had seen UFOs, what she would do is then after the formal kind of, you know, MUFON form was filled out, she would ask a few more questions. And basically the question was, you know, what's any strange stuff going on in your life? And then exactly. whoosh, this stuff would pour out and she would know right away whether they were abductees or not. She would never say, well, I think you're an abductee. But but her sense was that about 50% of the people who reported seeing UFOs to her, and, you know, through her time at MUFON, mm-hmm. uh, were abductees now. But Perhaps Hopkins, they would, you, would, you would call the maybes, right? Well, the maybe that would be the maybes, the ones who you know you haven't yeah. you haven't done a real formal investigation. Right. And my sense is, it's not up to the UFO investigator to tell someone they're an abductee. Uh, it's it's up to the abductee to sort of you know come to that conclusion on their own. Yeah. Um, but now, Bud Hopkins had a similar thought about this, and he pretty much said that a hundred percent of the people I'm rounding up, but he basically said, you know, quite literally, all the people who have seen UFOs are probably abductees. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, Bud made that claim 20 years ago, and, and I, I don't know when uh, Elaine made that claim, but I mean, I've talked to other... I didn't know he said 100. I mean, I didn't know he said anything like that. I mean, I, I know that he believed that this is vastly more widespread than we are willing to admit. The way he, I'm paraphrasing now, he said basically the way he said it, if, if people are seeing UFOs, they're probably abductees. They simply don't appear. They're appearing for a reason, and that would be... And you know, obviously, he's fil- he's got his own filters in place and everything. But so he was, you know, he never. I don't think he ever gave it a percentage, but the implication was that you know, most, if not all, okay. people yeah. who. who um, and I hate to speak for someone like this, but um, so you know, whatever he's, you know, fifty percent is pretty freaking high, and and I mean, even that is shocking. You know, fifty percent of the people that have well, seen yeah. UFOs, if you follow Elaine's line of thought, are abductees. Right. Sorry, are you asking what do I? Um, what, what do you I think, think of that? I mean, how do you make you know? That's that's my. I'll, I'll just stay straight up. That's my sense too. 
Well, it, yeah, it is my sense. I don't know if I would try to put a number to it. Um, but I will just say in my own – I've had m- so many um, conversations and interviews with people who've had either detailed sightings or, or, or something that's significant. And I'm often left with the sense that, yes, there, there was another component of that experience that they're not consciously remembering. Uh, we call it an abduction. So I think that there's a lot of this that's going on that uh, – we're not fully aware of. I do think it's entirely uh, possible to manage human memory sufficiently so that we're really not remembering these things most of the time. I mean, our, uh, our own militaries had very advanced mind control and memory management technologies for, for decades and decades. So if we're able to basically to, uh, I think, prevent fresh memories, I, th- I think the military... Like if they wanted to take you tonight or take me tonight, they could break into the house, <clears throat> give you an injection that would, from my understanding, that would inhibit the formation of fresh memories for a certain period of time. But you would still be conscious. You'd still be functional. You just would have no memory. So they could basically walk you out of the house, out the front door, and you, they wouldn't exactly. have to carry you. Yeah. And I've also heard from one abductee who talks about having uh, government interactions. His sense is that they can actually – like whatever, like I can't remember what the state you're in when you're in, in sleep. Is it alpha? I'm just making that up. I don't know what it would be. I don't remember. I don't know. So let's say it's alpha. So it's alpha and they okay. have a little machine, sleeping mm-hmm. person in the house. They right. have this machine that they point basically at the bedroom window. Yeah. And then they just turn up the knob a little bit and it enhances the alpha waves so you sleep more soundly as they enter the house. That that I have no idea whether that's true. That was his sense. Um, and he, and he seemed to be talking from firsthand experience, uh, but but I think that's fa- I mean that is, no, I think that doesn't that doesn't seem logical. out of the realm of possibility. It's, it's totally logical. U.S. military during the first Gulf War, we know this was the case because it all came out. Uh, some of the Apache helicopters were were um, given some kind of acoustic weaponry that was used to disrupt the the thinking patterns of the Iraqi soldiers on the ground and somehow were designed to induce fear or panic. And that's when they all, that's when they all uh, 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 gave themselves up. Yeah. So, right. And I, I mean, that's a weapon. So if we, and really, if we can induce panic and our own militaries had this capability for at least a quarter of a century, I'm sure more, than to enhance sleep or to put, and think about all the abduction stories that people have recounted. They get taken and meanwhile their spouse is like, out. Where they literally, out. yeah, exactly. They try to wake their spouse up. They scream and, and the spouse will is, not. Yeah. Yeah. So you get that again and again. So, yes, I think that these other beings, these other intelligences, have they have total knowledge and mastery over those aspects of our brain, of our mind. They know it better than we do. But, you know, our, our interaction with them is, gee, you know, I would never have said this even 10 years ago, but I think our, the, our interaction with them uh, is slowly working its way through humanity. And whether it's an intentional uh, awakening in the sense that they want to bring us to love and light and they want to bring us into the Galactic Federation of Galactic, Galactic Federation of Light. There we go. It's tough. It's tough. You, I, you, you need to like, drink some herbal tea before you can say that, oh, I think. God. So, yeah. Um, or, or if there's another agenda going on, but the, the, the sum total of what that interaction is that they're having with us is transforming us. It is having an effect on us. And really, how could it not? 
How could it not? Well, what I will say right straight up is that I have come forward with my own experiences. I've been talking about them online. I've been talking about, you know, like I stood on stage. I've had very few negative interactions where basically, you know, unlike now Whitley Strieber did the same thing a quarter century ago and was vilified to the point where, you know, it uh, it ruined his life in a way for, for a time. Right, um, I right. mean, he was treated as the laughing stock of, of uh, I mean, he was the, the basically the whipping boy for, for you know, to, if you wanted to call someone insane, you would basically say they were an alien reductee. Well, consider it, yes. There's been a major transformation in our cultural attitudes about this. So in the 1980s, when Whitley's book came out, it was 1987, that was also the time of Gulf Breeze, and that was also equally significant because with, with Whitley and with Gulf Breeze in the form of Ed Walters, the, the reason one reason Gulf Breeze was so difficult for researchers to accept was the fact that here's this guy, Ed Walters, who was a repeater. So he was having multiple experiences. And also he was talking about having telepathic experiences with these other entities. And a lot of the mainline researchers, guys like Jerome Clark, wrote articles saying that's all nonsense. And other of the traditional ufologists, the nuts and bolts crowd, they could not accept this. That's only in the 1980s. That's just 25 years ago where that concept was a brand new concept, really. Uh, Bud Hopkins was only – he was – you know, he had written his first book in 19 19- – 79, 80, 81. I think, I think it was missing, 82, 82, a missing time. 81, I think 81, okay. actually. Um, and he had written an article in the uh, Village Voice in 76, and that's what got him started into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and then he did um, his second book, Intruders, which I think was – that was also in 1987. They came so to all, yeah, right, right next to uh, – side by side with, uh, with Communion. With communion. And so the new idea by the mid-1980s – this is a, a brand new idea – is that – people could be having multiple ongoing uh, experience. I mean, I guess the idea was there. You have the Andreasen Affair, which was published in the late 70s, and that was one concept of it. But it was still a very new idea, basically, in the field that you could have repeated experiences and repeated telepathic connections. This was, um, this was just not discussed in ufology prior to the 1980s. So it's taken a full generation for some of these ideas to work their way into our thinking and for some of the old uh, conservative God basically to die off and for new people to come in who are more open to this, more willing to explore it and who are themselves, um, you know, experiencing things that that's convincing them that they're, that they're, they're having these experiences as well. So it's, it's just, it all takes time. I mean, the transformation of our consciousness as a species can't happen overnight it i think it has to happen by degrees and it seems to me that you know we're in that process of going through that and it is being i mean it just seems like there's it's being orchestrated you yeah. know to yeah. to you know to what a greater or lesser level i don't know i mean obviously you know humanity has been evolving since we you know climbed down from the trees but it seems like it's being ushered uh, and I say that simply because I'm so immersed in this stuff, you know, like I'm so obsessively, you know, researching it, um, that it's easy for me to say that, though I would I would have a hard time backing that up. So it's just I'm a sense. So, it's just um, a sense. I'm, yeah. I'm still very, very uh, hands-off or arm's length with uh, a lot of the channelers. Well, uh, well no, here, re- so, here, let me just say that. So yeah. I am too. I mean, whatever it is, the, the right. content is challenging. 
But what is not challenging is the consistent pattern of people who say, you know, I was abducted by a UFO, and then shortly after that I started channeling. That's consistent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's right. Or, um, and or I'm, glad, I'm glad you addressed it in the book, in the, in the um, UFOs for the 21st Century Mind, the, the channeling stuff, because that's one of my – uh, I remember I asked Bud Hopkins straight up about that, and I've asked Dave Jacobs straight up about that face-to-face, and they just rolled their eyes and like, oh, I'm not going there. That's, that's well, they're so of a, stupid. They're of a different generation, and I'm not knocking – I mean I, I knew Bud uh, reasonably well, and I know David, and um, <clears throat> you know, both exceptionally intelligent men. But they're also of a different generation, a different – Sure, yeah. A, a totally different kind of mindset. So that's um, really not that surprising. Oh, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not, you know, deriding either of them. But I mean, it is no. something that the, the reason I bring it up is because initially, when I first started looking into this, don't ask me why, I was, you know, everyone I talked to, you know, Leo Sprinkle would call me up and say, "Oh, here's someone you should talk to," and then I'd make mm-hmm. make a call and talk to that person, and yeah. and uh, you know, one of the questions I would ask is, or the one of the things they would say themselves without any prompting from me is that, yeah, no, since all this started happening, I've been channeling. And some people don't like it. They said, I didn't trust it. I didn't like it. I wanted to. One guy actually said he wanted to atrophy that side of his brain that oh, was wow. channeling. And he t- no, no. I, I think it's absolutely fascinating. Um, I'll tell you something that uh, I don't think I've ever told anyone publicly, but I'll, I, this is such a wild conversation we're having. I'm just going to put it out. And it, it doesn't mean one thing to an, or another to me necessarily, but I have, um, I have a, a friend. I remember I mentioned my Canadian friend who had the triangle sighting. Oh, here, let me let me just interject so, one thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, I'll just ask you straight up. Do you feel that she is an abductee? Yes. Okay, I, good. I feel that she's had, she's had definite interactive experiences with, with other entities. And my sense is that they don't all play out like, you know, uh, you know, being on a table and having creepy no, medical No, I don't exams. think that's happened to her. I think, yeah. sir, I think you're exactly right. I think she had an experience... Uh, in fact, she described a reptilian type of entity that she distinctly remembered seeing. And I said, well, what do you mean when you saw it? She said, I saw it. Like, I was fully conscious and awake. And I was like, okay. But uh, a friend of this this woman, who I actually also now know, and this is a, a much older lady, also in Canada, who is an astrologer. Now, again, I don't, I don't do astrology, but... I can I can, can no longer dismiss astrology, and I'll tell you why. Because this lady originally did my chart. She initially had no idea who I was. All she knew was my first name and my birth information. And she's so old school. She's not on the Internet. She's nothing like that. She did a cassette tape where she talked into the cassette about me. And uh, suffice to say, this lady absolutely, absolutely nailed me. She had me pegged as a writer. She said, but you're not an ordinary writer. You're on the edge. You, um, you have an unusual communication skill, and you're a, very, you're a good writer, and you're out there. You're in opposition to something, opposition maybe to the government, but not even just that. You're, you're on the fringes of reality itself. And she eventually said, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you were interested in things like UFOs. I nearly fell off my chair, but as if that wasn't enough. She then did my son's chart. And, um, I mean, one could argue, if you were an utter cynic, that my very close friend who I trust with my life gave this astrologer this information about me and they were just playing a game with me. I absolutely don't believe that because I, I know them both and I know that wasn't the case. But you could not argue that regarding my son who was nine years old at the time that this woman did his chart because no one knew almost anything about my son. She described him to a T and then she made a prediction of fear. She said, I'm afraid that he's at risk for something 
that could be really bad. And she mentioned two diseases, one of which was diabetes. One year later, my son contracted, he became an insulin-dependent diabetic. Uh, less than 12 months later. And she said, I see this as a real danger. And then it happened. By the way, my son's health, he's 17 years old, almost 18. He's a black belt in uh, martial arts and he is incredibly healthy and he can easily kick my butt. He manages his blood sugar like a pro. He's amazing. He's an inspiration. But the fact is he contracted diabetes when he was 10 years old. And I have the cassette tape in my possession from uh, eight months prior. Now, I ask myself, all right, how the hell, how the hell can an astrologer see that? That's not chance, in my opinion. So there, again, and this is one of the points I make in, in the, my new book, there is an element of this reality that we are experiencing that we that is beyond our logical mind. It's beyond our outer layer of consciousness. Why does astrology work? You tell me. I don't know why it works. But somehow there's, there's, a, there's something in that that I am convinced works. So it, it says something about the, the structure, the fabric of, our, of space and time that we in our ordinary daily life are missing. We're not getting it. But unless unless you're, you're the people who are getting it are the funny ladies in the flowy dresses and the turquoise uh, earrings yeah. at yeah. the UFO conferences. Yep. And I mean, I, and it's I messy and it's it. sloppy and it's be, yeah. it'd be totally complicated to try to quantify and research, but um, but it's there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Hey, and, and one of the things I mean, you just sort of like the, I've been I've been trying. I mean, obviously, I've been trying to. I don't want to say avoid using my my logic, my head, but I have been trying to follow my heart with this stuff. I've been trying to follow my intuition with this stuff, and it has been um, very liberating because I initially, the first few years I was in this, man, my sanity was in jeopardy. I was gritting my teeth, man. I could not get dragged down these these lines of thought, and now, I don't know what happened. Something changed, and now I'm, I'm like, you know, my, you know, just like, okay, on an intuitive level, yeah, for sure. There's something going on with 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 astrology and psychics and all these things. Now, here's a question: Do you think that woman, the um, astrologer, is a is a UFO abductee? Um, Has she had any experiences? I, I can't remember how you met her, but um, I'm trying. I'm trying to remember because I I I've spoken with her many times on the phone, and I visited her one time at her home uh, for the first time about a year ago. Actually, she's such a lovely lady. Um. I think she's had sightings, yeah. So there, I mean, so I, so, so on this. I if think she's, she's had, had sightings, her, and you go by the Bud Hopkins, Elaine uh, Douglas thing, you know, she there's a, you know a, a, a above fifty percent chance that she's an abductee. I'm I'm being purposely oh. kind of you know uh, so provocative I, here. Yeah, so I want to tell the one the, the main thing I forgot to tell you. So she does the astrology, but this woman when she did my chart, and I've I've, I've spoken to three astrologers who have done my chart, and they've all said the same thing. I have I have uh, what's called a grand trine. In my chart, and uh, again, I can't interpret this, but every astrologer, this is it's almost like funny to me. But they all look at my chart, and they all my, they say, "Holy crap, who is this guy?" Because like two of the astrologers that did my chart, this woman and another guy, did not know who I was. 
and they both had this, my God, I'm looking at an incredible chart. So apparently, to some astrologers, I got this really cool chart. So what, one thing she said about me, and this is why well, I've never explored this, but she said, you have the ability to be a first-rate deep trance channeler. She said that about me. Ooh, about okay. Richard I'm, I'm going to make yeah. a note here because I keep going. But I'm So now um, that was in this tape of uh, almost a decade ago, you know, when she gave this to me, uh, 2004, 2005, late 04. So I got that information and I think, hmm, that's interesting because this woman is so good. That's the thing about, like, if anyone and some ordinary person were to tell me that, I think, well, great, that's, that's nice. But for this lady to tell me that... I could never, ever, ever just dismiss what she says out of hand because she, in my view, she's got street cred. Now, she predicted my son's diabetes, so I'm listening. But I've, I've, I can just say to you and, and listeners, I have never tried to explore that possibility. Not, not up to this point. I have not tried to do it. Okay, well, um, we might get. Uh, I want to be very careful how I say this. Um, I have had some psychic sessions with Anya Briggs, who I know you've met, yes. and she is a somewhat controversial figure in this field. Yeah. Uh, I did a series, this would have been, I remember I said earlier, I said 2009, I was worried I, I was going to go insane. Like basically I spent 95% of my waking hours of the year 2009 wondering whether I had gone insane. Um, so that's, well, that's, that's, yeah. seems about right. So, um, and it was in the end of 2009, we met under very synchronistic circumstances. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, I think it was early November of 2009, she did a psychic session for me. Okay. And un, I have it on tape. It is unimaginably accurate. Things she said that in that were, were so dead on. And then she even like, you know, like I, this is, a, I'm not going to tell the whole story because it's so long, but she kind of like almost started just babbling this stuff and it was like wait a minute where is this coming from and she's like I don't know and she she said she listed two cities she said do you know Byron North Dakota do you know Byron Wyoming and I was like oh, I, I don't know what you're talking about where did that come from and like and then later I did some research now this gets very complicated and I'm just going to give you a little snippet of it if okay. you take a if you take a map this is the f- map thing again if you yeah. take a map and there is a county called Byron North Dakota but that county on Google Maps is just a pushpin in a farmer's field. And that's how, you know, you type in Byron, North Dakota, this pushpin in a farmer's field appears. Hmm. Okay. There is a Byron, Wyoming. It's a very small town, about as small a town as Wyoming can offer up. Um, and I live in a little town in uh, eastern Idaho. If you take a line on a map and put it from Byron, Wyoming, excuse me, start at Byron, North Dakota, stretch it through... Byron, Wyoming, and continue that line. It's about 800 miles long. It passes through the cabin I'm sitting in right now. Wow. So, I mean, whatever whatever grief you want to give Anya Briggs, I can totally, unquestionably say that she is a very skilled psychic. I so, am, uh, I'm on Google Earth right now, and I just pulled up Byron, North Dakota, and then Byron, Wyoming... If there is a way to on Google Maps to uh, to uh, to make a straight line on the map system. So wait, you're Byron White, but you're in Idaho, I thought, right? I'm in I'm in Driggs, Idaho. Yep. 
So that's certainly not going to be in between. No, no, no. So you start at Byron. So I'm at one end of it. I'm at the westernmost edge, and Byron, North Dakota, is at the easternmost edge, and then Byron, Wyoming, is in the middle. Now, to tell the story properly, what I want to do is make a YouTube video about this stuff because oh, there see. is so many crazy synchronicities connected to this story. Uh, owls, Mactonies. And she just pulled like, that out. She just pulled that out of the blue. You can hear it. I have it. I have it on the on a. Um, I have. I've actually. It's posted on my line the, on my website. Uh, the, when she speaks. She's basically saying, like, oh, you should eat you should eat less salt. Oh, you know what would be really good for you? You should put more olive oil in your diet. That would be really good. Do you know Byron, North Dakota? Do you know Byron, Wyoming? <laughs> so so anyway, so yeah, there's and now I'll tell you this. So so Anya Briggs says she was just a normal person. One day she was walking down the street, saw a giant UFO hovering above New York City. Then she sat down and started channeling her brains out and then started doing psychic sessions. And Anya Briggs said I would be an excellent trans channeler. To, uh, to you, about to me, you. To me, she said, if I meditated 15 minutes a day, by the end of a month, I'd be channeling. Now, uh, to be quite honest, that freaks me out a little bit, and I'm like, I haven't started meditating, <laughs> partially because of that. So um, yeah, that's a that's little bit of a, you know, whatever. I mean, I, there's lots of other reasons. So out of sheer laziness, okay. I haven't started to, to uh, meditate right. either, but uh, it is on my life list of things to check off at one point. Hey, um, where I got one question here for you. So, okay. Uh, and we've been going at for about an hour and 44 minutes. So just speak up if you need to, you know, pull out of this, but, um, well, in a little while, I mean, I'm enjoying this very much. Okay, great. So, so, uh, it's back to the same article where Elaine Douglas said that 50%, at least 50% of people who see UFOs are abductees. She starts the article recently, a MUFON state director told me we haven't had an abduction case in our state since year one. I am not interested in abduction cases. My investigators are not interested in abduction cases. And then a little couple farther down in her article, she she talks to this guy, and he actually describes seeing gray aliens in his bedroom as a child, the state director who says there's no abductions in his state. Mm-hmm. So so I just thought that was – I mean, that's an odd little insight into, into you know, uh, human nature, I guess. I know um, people uh, – one who um, has been somewhat close to me over a number of years who – I am convinced, personally, has had some kind of very bizarre experience in her life, when at least when she was a child, but who absolutely rigorously will not engage this subject at all. Even though, I mean, it was actually something that would bump into her a lot through myself and through family, because it was kind of unavoidable. And as someone who's had a strong interest, and she's very intelligent, and takes an interest in things that other people do, but she would never and has never and will never... I think, take an interest in this topic. And I, I've always felt it's because it connects with her at a very deep level that provokes a deep fear. And now this, this uh, state director, I mean, I really have to assume there's something similar going on. Uh, now, in his case, it's different because he became interested enough in the subject to, to deal with it at the level of like MUFON. So As pretty, a MUFON state director, yeah. Yeah, but still... There's something deep inside him it that is, is that is it's frightening. And it he, is a, just, he pushes it out. It is a funny insight into human nature. Yeah, yeah. So here now, this is this might take us way off topic here, but I'm going to ask this because this is a question I do not have an answer for, and I guess I do have an answer, which I'll give you in a second. But um, okay, um, what does Mufon do? 
Like, I, I actually cannot answer that. I, I have thought about this a lot. And this is why I don't get invited back to the movie <laughs> to speak anymore. You know, for um, 10 years, from uh, 2001, or from 2002 to 2011, that's a 10, 10 years, I spoke at five of the MUFON International Symposium. Symposium. So, every, like half of the available years. So basically, every other year I was there. And, uh, and then in 2011, explicitly when I defended Elaine Douglas, in fact, at that symposium. Like on a stage or like just on back a stage, at the bar? dude. Okay, right on for you. God bless you for you. Yeah, so this is – partially, they, they, partially they, this they, question comes from my friendship with Elaine and stuff she shared with me. So keep going. Well, um, Elaine – this is all related here to what we're talking about with Move Fun. But Elaine Douglas initially had a very strong distrust of me. And uh, it, it's just funny how she and I started our relationship. Oh, back I can in totally o- see it. Oh <laughs> four, oh five. She um, she calls me up on on my home phone, and uh, you have to understand how funny this is. Of course, anyone listening. So she says, "Well, I um, I'm writing a critique about you for the Mufon Journal, and they are refusing to publish it." So I would like for you to read it and tell me why they're not publishing it. Wow. That was like exactly how she introduced <laughs> herself to me. Oh, good, good, good. And I thought, this is this is, woman's got a lot of moxie, man. She just comes right in there. So I said, sure, you know, send it to me and I'll read it. And um, and I got back to her and basically, I mean, her she, her beef with me was over my political analysis, which was that I was even arguing back then, this is 10 years ago, that when we talk about a cover-up of the UFO phenomenon, we're talking about more than just politics. We're talking about privatization of the secret. And that's definitely my, my opinion now. But she had a really strong resistance to that idea. And Elaine is, was very sophisticated politically. I mean, she's a brilliant lady. I mean, really knows her politics, knows, knows Washington politics as well. She had a degree in uh, a military strategy from MIT. Yeah, I mean, she's absolutely just so smart. So she thought that I was full of it, and um, and this was her critique of me, which that's totally fair. I, I'm not offended by any of that. But what I said to her was, um, I think Mufon, the, the journal, probably wouldn't publish it because, I mean, a lot of your attitude is really came across kind of snide, Elaine, and it's not that like I'm untouchable. I mean, I'm just one researcher of many, but. You really, it almost read like an attack piece. So she said, Oh, okay, well, thank you. And, and, um, I think she reworked it, but I don't, I don't think it ever got published by them. Anyway, the thing was, she and I became, we really developed a lot of respect for each other over the years. And, um, I think she was cool, happy about the fact that I didn't take offense that she was critiquing me. And that was probably a, a mark in my favor. But then what happened was in 2011, she really – she was the focal point of the kind of resistance, the rebellion within MUFON's ranks to try to get that organization to be more transparent. The leadership is – was and is utterly opaque in many ways. Uh, we know that MUFON has been dominated by people who have been in naval intelligence for years and years and years. Thomas Dooley is the most prominent of them. Richard Hall was uh, Air Force intelligence, very prominent. James Carey. James Caron, absolutely. And, I mean, it just keeps going. Military contractors. 
and and MUFON for forty five years now. I mean, what do they give? As you're asking, they give nothing. They give nothing back to the world. Nothing. So they have report, uh, investigators who accept reports. They do reports. They collect. They do something. What are the results of these investigations? As far as the outside world knows, not one single thing, not one annual report, not one conclusion of anything. So, yes, what does MUFON do? They take, they are, they, they fulfill the function of channeling, and I'm using this word in a different way, channeling the energies of people who are interested in this topic, who might take it seriously, and effectively disabling them and keeping them spinning their wheels around and around so that they're not making forward progress. MUFON is the one civilian organization in the U.S. that really has, uh, you know, the strong connection with the UFOs. So if you want to get into investigating, you join MUFON. But what does MUFON really do? It controls you and it, and it kind of keeps you spinning your wheels in this very, very limited, you know, very limited um, group of people. I mean, they still have the same membership today in 2014 that they had in uh, 1980, for God's sake. I bet you it's lower. Yeah, right. And this is UFOs, one of the most popular topics on the web, and they're at such a low level. So with the, the thing with Elaine, though, I just will mention this. Um, Elaine and the, and the reform crowd was, were at the MUFON convention in 2011 in force. A lot of them were there, and they were sort of the outcast pariahs there. But I, even though I was a speaker by MUFON, I went out of my way to um, – to talk with Elaine, I went out of my way to talk with that whole reform crowd because I was totally on their side. They wanted open elections of the members of the board rather than having the board select itself and all of that stuff. Um, so when I did my talk, I was asked to speak about something totally different, but I took the last 15 minutes out and I talked about why MUFON needed to reform. And in fact, the core of that I put up on my YouTube channel and it says Richard Dolan speaking about the future of ufology and that's that speech. And, and in fact, when I look at it, it's so tepid. I mean, but in the context of that conference, it was not tepid because I knew that if I gave this talk, they would possibly never invite me back, but I didn't care. Hey, MUFON has more to fear from me than I do from MUFON. And I thought I'm just going to say what I said. And, um, and I did, I learned that Clifford Clift, who was the international director at the time, someone was standing near him when I was speaking, and he got so mad. <laughs> he got so mad. Uh, he let out an expletive. He said, Dolan is never speaking at another bleeping con- conference here ever again. And um, after – and that's exactly what was told to me. After that, I was uh, approached by Clifford and Jan Harzan – privately and they said we'd like to talk with you privately about your remarks we want to show you what we're doing to deal with your concerns but they were really upset with me and they said so privately they said you know we really don't like the fact that you uh brought this out and aired the dirty laundry what i can tell you is that the people in the conference were totally into what i had to say the attendees were absolutely totally completely into it when i finished speaking i felt like there was an extra long silence i felt like you know, Bugs Bunny and the old Warner Brothers c- cartoons where the crickets, the are, crickets chirping are chirping. Me. Yeah. That's how I felt. But then suddenly, like, they, I got very, very strong applause. So I knew it resonated. But Clifford and Jan were, were not happy. And frankly, in that meeting, I was, um, I was very blunt. 
And uh, this is when Chase Kletsky was making her statements about the MUFON star team and what she had to say was quite significant. James Clarkson at the time was, was talking about yep. MUFON problems. And Elaine, Elaine Douglas was extremely prominent. And um, they were all on the Jerry Pippin show. And you then you know what? I have, I, I have uh, all of those links collected. Uh, and, ah. I, and I'm going to do a post where basically I just, you know, you can click on each link down the line right. and listen to that. Because it is pretty incendiary when those folks, I mean, Elaine can, man, she would get charged. Oh, up, Elaine. She was very absolutely. straight. So here's my answer. So, so yeah. I asked you, what does MUFON do? And here's the answer. I'm reading right off of what I wrote. Um, here's my answer. They collect okay. a lot of reports. Right. Much of which are very well investigated, mm-hmm. and then that information goes into a black hole, never to reemerge. Absolutely, yeah, that's exactly right, and that's that's the problem. So when you when you look at it, what's their function? Their function is to collect and to disable. So they collect reports, they're collecting information, um, but that's actually less valuable to them, in my opinion, than literally channeling the energies of the participants in MUFON. The UFO investigators who are doing hard work, boots on the ground work. Who ordinarily could be uh, going much, much farther in their interest in UFOs. And instead, they're being channeled by this organization to doing basically time-consuming, expensive, important, yes, but basically uh, the types of investigations where nothing comes out of their work. Yeah. Okay, great. So that's what I... And I think it's... When you look at uh, MUFON in comparison with prior UFO-type organizations, whether uh, the old NICAP or even one that people have forgotten about, CSI, a Civilian Saucer Investigation, really interesting group that was based out of California in the 50s. Uh, all of these were subverted by intelligence. And then you have APRO, which was also infiltrated by uh, Air Force intelligence and probably CIA. Um, so all of them. I mean, and, and it would... It makes perfect sense. You're dealing with a subject where there is a national security connection. There is an interest by the intelligence community. Absolutely. So, of course, they're going to want to know what these – the more prominent civilian organizations are doing. And they're going to want to control them and manage them and, and again, channel them in safe avenues, non-challenging, non-threatening avenues. And MUFON is the – the best example, better than NICAP, better than any of them, for that type of an organization. That's what's happened to them. They've been made, they've been declawed, defanged. They never had claws to begin with, but it's, it's, you know, the idea is to keep it that way. Okay, we've been rolling for just about two hours here, so I'll let you go. And But one final question, or more just a, I just want you to comment on this. So a friend of mine was at a UFO conference, and she just happened to sit next to John Mack, uh, this is interesting. It's 2014 now, so he died 10 years ago. Yeah. And she's, she's sitting next to him in the dark conference room, and they were showing video clips of, like, UFO v- videos. All right. And the videos were, like, little little dots, little white dots in the sky, just kind of moving in the sky. Mm-hmm. And here's a guy who sat, obviously sat with, you know, a lot of folks and listened to their stories, their, their direct contact stories. And so he's sitting in this conference looking at a video of little, you know, little you know, things right. moving around the sky and he kind of sighs and says, haven't we moved beyond little lights in the sky? Yeah. So that, I'm going to ask you, that would be his reaction. Yeah. I'm going to ask you to comment on just like the, the totality of what that implies and that coming from something well over 10 years ago. Well, indeed, again, this, this refers back to something we were discussing you and I earlier in this discussion where we we're talking about these two, the two roads 
the two roads into this subject, the uh, nuts and bolts, let's study this phenomenon as objectively as we can, which there is value in that, obviously. And then there's the other road, the road of the mind, the road of the deep mind. Or I would say the more you know, even the soul, or the you know, almost like I yeah. mean, you have to sort of tap into it at a at a at a deeper level. You know, yeah, than I would just the say mind, no, yeah, the heart. No. Let's say, yeah. So sure, we, we sure why not? I mean, it's but it's that deeper level, the deep mind, the soul level, the heart level. And uh, at that point, of course, John Mack was that was always the area that he was delving into. He, John Mack never really did uh, sightings, so the hell did he care about that? He was a psychologist, a psychiatrist, psychologist who worked with people. And worked with the mind, worked with people's experience, and his training was always going below, going in deep, deep, deep into the mind. So, um, sure, that's going to be his interest. I mean, why would John Mack care about you know, lights in the sky and craft and things like that? That's, that'd be the, you know, the least of his interests, I would think. And it also shows up when you get a bunch of UFO abductees, which I've sat in a big circle of them, and men, you know, are hanging out at a conference, or people that talk to me late at night, and or that I talk to, or you know, and uh, nobody gives a crap about little lights in the sky, as far as the people who've had the direct experience. I mean, obviously, no, it's true. But but the thing is, um, you know, when um, when I speak publicly, which I do all the time in this field, I have to keep in mind that there are people are not all on the same page with this phenomenon and we are speaking to many many different um many different people who are in a totally different place in, in their understanding of this phenomenon and if, if i this is i'm just speaking for myself here but if i were only to go at the advanced levels the grad student level and dive right in i, I would be losing so many others who i i know those people want to be turned on to this so I, I'm always trying to find a way to reach them. I'm always trying to find a way to have a dialogue with with the um, the larger community, with the matrix, <laughs> with with the people who are living in this illusory world, this illusory reality. But I'm trying to reach them, and that's just something that I've chosen to do. And I still feel it's valuable to to um, remind ourselves of what constitutes valid evidence. In, in terms of our society, in terms of our, our kind of intellectual discourse. And we, we don't want to lose sight of that. So there's always a message that I come back to. And one of those messages is there are things that I don't have to speculate about. There are things that I know are true. One thing that I know is true is that there is a phenomenon that the military of the United States and militaries of other nations have interacted with that they are concerned about. That's not speculation. That's not guesswork. That I know. And I know this from our own declassified military documents that state it. So I keep, I come back to that. To me, that's an important point. That's an important point for us in terms of our political discourse and our society, which to me, that matters. It matters to me that we're able to get that question out on the table because I still believe in this this chimera called representative government and I believe in the fact that we American citizens and world citizens have a right to our government being responsive to this incredibly important issue and when the government blows us off that's a failure of our system and I don't want to live in a country where that system is broken down I don't want that so I want that system to be fixed. And to me, that means understanding rules of evidence. That means being able to engage in the broader community 
to get that goddamn system to work the way it's supposed to work. And maybe that's a pipe dream on my part, but I don't really care. That's important to me. So on that basis, you know, the little lights in the sky that John Mack was dismissive of, I'm less dismissive of it. I understand his position and the position of a lot of the other people who say, let's go beyond that. But I, I counter, no, it's very important that we maintain extremely uh, strong um, emphasis on, on evidence that is valid, that we can put out on the table to, to, so that we can engage in the broader uh, kind of discourse on this topic, so that we can get this out there. To, to generate some real change, political change, which is necessary. If we're going to talk about this topic openly, we need to be able to broach it in a way that's based on evidence because you have, you have not only a, um, an ignorant and skeptical world out there, but one that's, that's – much of it is hostile to this idea of having their reality transformed by this, by this thing that we've been studying. So we've got to be careful. We have to be based on um, evidence that is defensible. And I'll say that, that I have a very modest blog, uh, and I don't get that many hits. I mean, there's a lot of folks that are putting out information that I don't really you know, think is all that great, and they get a lot more hits than I do. Um, and my, so my, you know, what I feel like I'm doing is, is working to, I mean, this is my own therapy. Like, I, this is my exploration. This is, this, is, right. this is as deep as I can go, and I'm trying to be as transparent with it as I can. And, and, um, and right. wherever it leads, I'm going to make sure to somehow document it and, and get it out there uh, in, the, in the form of these, uh, you know, some of the written essays I've done in the form of the, uh, this podcast series as well as in this book project yeah. that I'm working on. So, um, so it's interesting. Yeah, I just, you know, like for me, like this is my own personal journey, and I'm doing it in a very public way. So, uh, and then, you know, it's right there. So you can, you know, I'm a one, you know, click away if anyone wants to dig into what I've, what I've been trying to say over these last five years that I've been doing the blog. Right. So, well, I feel that your, your insights, many of your insights are, are first level of importance in, uh, trying to grapple with this topic. So, I mean, thank God you're doing this. Good, good. Well, it's interesting because that wasn't the expe- answer I expected when you, so, so that was good to hear that. Uh, hey, mm-hmm. um, it's over two hours. I should let you go. This has been wonderful. Uh, I'm totally jacked up on coffee right now, and this is great. Uh, I'm, I'll uh, I'll get this uh, posted online soon. I have to thank you so much. Um, this seems like a really good time. It seems like I've been you've been on my list to, to call for an interview. We did one back when uh, AD came out, and I was right. it's always been on my mind. Oh, I gotta drag. Rich I think back I think in, this so. is our best conversation yet. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Yeah, well, I'm I'm really glad that I um, that you had me on here, Mike. It was a uh, it's been a pleasure, and I'm just so glad um, you were able to. We were able to make it happen, and I, I know we'll be talking again. I just want to mention, if anyone is ever interested in any of the stuff that I'm doing, they can go to my website, which is richarddolanpress.com. Wonderful. It's easy. We'll hope to talk to you soon. Back at you. Thanks for having me on. I know. Hi, this is Mike. I'm chiming in during the editing. Uh, that was the end of the formal interview. Uh, and now I'm going to tack on what was originally at the beginning, which was Rich and I when I when we connected on Skype, you know, wham, we went right into it. Man, we were talking, we were talking fast and furious. I think we were both jacked up on coffee, and uh, and then we realized, like, hey, wait a minute, we haven't, uh, we like haven't done a uh, uh, the hello part, you know, like the, you know, welcome to the podcast thing. So uh, we were probably you know 20 minutes or so into this when we finally got around to that. So that's what you're going to hear now. You're going to hear Rich and I. 
basically picking up the, the phone and and just jumping right into it and then uh, and then it ends with the beginning of the formal interview so kind of a time slip thing and after the end of Rich's part which is the beginning of the formal interview I'm tacking on 11 and a half minute excerpt from Slaughterhouse Five uh, from a book on tape, and that's something that we tapped into Rich and I earlier in the talk, where we talked about the time slip stuff. Now, I just also want to say, Rich has a beautiful speaking voice. He's very focused. I feel like I am so freaking scatterbrained side by side with the stuff he's saying, and uh, the whole thing ends with perhaps one of the more beautiful voices in the history of cinema. Uh, Jose Ferrar reading from Slaughterhouse Five. So I'll uh, quit my whining about my own voice and let you continue on listening to Rich. All right, can you hear me? Oh, yes, I'm turning you down just a little bit. I hear you. That's all good. Let me turn this volume up. All right, good. So I'm doing this just like I do my radio show. I have a, a large Yeti microphone with a windscreen, which I'm on right now. Okay, so you sound like God, basically. You got your voice, you know, so you got <laughs> and, um, and plugged into that is a, a really nice uh, headphone. So I'm hearing you through that, and I'm hearing myself through that. Great. So it's all, it's all actually really good, and you should have no... There should be no feedback to you. Good. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, well, this is awesome, because I do um, whatever it is... Uh, there, it is so. I mean, you have an excellent setup. I have a basically a twenty nine dollars setup where I just plugged a headset in that I got from Radio Shack, and it usually sounds mm-hmm. pretty good. I'm going to turn it just a little bit like this. This, this microphone, it's a it's a one hundred dollar microphone, and I, I have gifts. A, yeah, I have a seventy nine dollar microphone, and I actually don't. I need like a, I need what do you call it, like a stand. I'm too tall. You know, like I have to kind of bend down on the desk. It just came with this dinky little stand, so I haven't followed up and, and gotten a tall stand. So, or that, or a little teeny chair. I think would pop. So, hey, just first Great. of all, before you know, uh, this is all we're recording right now, but I'm not worried about that. We'll start the formal interview mm-hmm. shortly. Um, hey, just thanks so much for for watching that interview uh, or the uh, presentation. Mike, I did. Your, your talk was it was one of the best talks I've uh, I've ever seen, it was, and it hit me at exactly exactly the right time in my life. That's for me really to get to go deep with what you're saying. And it's it's crazy. I'll just tell you, um, I so since last July, I've been doing Kundalini yoga twice a week. Oh, God bless you for that. That's actually just what I need to do. So I, I mean, I did yoga for a long time, and um, mm-hmm. and uh, I gave it up, um, uh, and then I just need to go back, and it's just out of sheer yeah. laziness that I haven't done it. So, well, I I was in the same boat. Honestly, I did I did it uh, a little over twenty years ago in the early years with Karen. We did it for about a year or two with um with a instructor and he was really cool and then we kind of got out of it and and then last summer i thought i i'm going to do this again and i man i'm just so into it so that's been one thing and the other thing is i've been trying more and more to meditate and i've been i mean really really um i'm listening to uh, a fantastic audio series by a zen master called the science of enlightenment shins and young and i love this and all of this is I don't know. I think something has happened to me this year. So recently was ha- I had an experience where I went so fucking deep into my own thought processes that it was almost scary. And I, I was able to see like my various layers of consciousness and realizing that like this layer that you and I are talking on, this is where I'm at almost all the time. And it's, it's my surface layer and it's a great layer. It's very effective, but it's, it's. I still can't put this all into words, but it is 
these are the neural pathways that I use, and it's simply the way that my brain is functioning to create the reality, our shared reality. But below that, below that is another language. It's another, I mean, even below the reptilian brain, I think I, I reached into the, my very core processes of thought, which made me confront, like, I mean, at the soul level, do I have a soul or is, is what I am simply a, a series of processes? There's no, there's no ego. There's no me. There's these processes that make up the core of my brain, and I feel like I was looking at them. It's a crazy idea. So now connecting that with your talk became very obvious to me. These other beings. We should do this on an interview, but these other beings. I mean, we, this is being recorded right now, so we, I can yeah, check this at the end. So, oh. so these these other beings, um, other intelligences, they are. They operate. They their thinking is different. They don't have our surface layer of consciousness. They don't operate like that at all. So they that means like we really can't get them, and they really can't get us. But the difference is that they they can operate on our level enough they somehow know how we're thinking they know how you're thinking that's why they're sending you all these fucking owls they are because they're like for us to do that we don't have the intelligence to be able to peer into everyone's mind and to know exactly what they need but they must have that capability they must so they observing you and just like you were saying in your talk, they're, they're giving you hints. How do they do it? Here's how they can do it. It's how hard do you think it is for them to control the neurological processes of an owl? I will bet you not hard at all. Do you remember the 1999 uh, elk abduction story? This is in the state of Washington. This is a well-known case. In fact, I wrote about it in my new book. Um, Peter Davenport investigated this uh, uh, to some extent. So you have a bunch of forestry workers in uh, the state of Washington, and they see a low craft, they see a herd of elk, and they see one of those elk. Like the whole herd's moving in one direction, and one lone elk is moving on its own very slowly in a totally different direction. So it's breaking the herd. And these forestry workers said they saw this craft come very low and literally then directly over the elk and lift it up and fly off with it. And the implication is that the elk was somehow, there's some form of mind control that exactly. made the elk walk over that direction. I mean, that's what you get all, I mean, there's how many, I've heard thousands, not exactly. thousands, but hundreds of accounts of people saying like, oh, I got up in the middle of the night and had this urge to walk out onto the back porch. Yeah, totally, totally. And we, you and I have talked about this, and I've encountered many stories like this as well. People who have had the orange orb experience outside their bedroom, they have an urge at two in the morning, whatever. They get up and they look outside and boom, there's this orange orb. So obviously these, this intelligence they have the ability somehow to know the thought processes, the surface layer and the deeper layer of humans and other creatures. So when they're, they know your thought process, they, they find you interesting enough that they're giving you this form of communication and they're using other creatures. They're using an owl. This is what I'm thinking. They're using, they're getting into the brain of an owl and they're saying, owl, go fly over there. Now, now I, in, the, in the written essay that I wrote and in the book project I'm working on, I try to explore that in depth in the sense that there is no better animal on the face of the earth than the owl right. to play the role of 
like, you know, uh, organic surveillance camera. You know, it flies quietly. It's got eyes that can see in the dark. It's got excellent hearing. Um, you know, so if an owl is sitting at my window, it could hear me talking in the house very clearly. Uh, so, so yeah, so that's one of the, and then, you know, so where I'm, where I'm trying to juggle this a little bit is, uh, you know, there's sort of a blending between, you know, who do you call? Do you call it like someone has a UFO owl experience? Do you call MUFON or do you call like the shaman from the local, uh, Indian reservation, you know, is to, to bet who's, who can better look at the, the, you know, the issues in their totality. I mean, uh, you know, is it, you know, we have, we have folklore and mythology in place already that mm-hmm. treats the owl as a messenger as um you know playing a role in yeah. in these mythic realms you know i think the answer is the shaman i agree and and um because we're we're encountering this is an intelligence i mean are they extraterrestrial are they from another planet are they from another i don't know where they are where they're from where they live i don't know but but they um we don't know. <laughs> I mean, well, we don't know. Yeah, that's. The, I mean, it's a mystery. We're dealing with a total mystery. To yeah, me is, is that uh, there are people who think that I'm some kind of expert and that I'm some I, that I know this, and and I think, my God, if if there are people who look at me as an expert, we are hosed because I'm I'm just as mystified as as you are and as anybody else. And and I think that's. I mean, my sense is that you know if we if we unravel some aspect of it, ah, we figure something out. Like, oh, here's some little part of the overall UFO mystery that we figure out. I suspect yeah. strongly that some new part of it will just emerge in some unknown spot that will yeah. either you know confound us even more. Yeah, I I, I agree with you. I, I, I haven't seen us really unraveling any aspects of it though in the last seventy or so years or whatever it's been now. So, well, your your talk. Um, I mean, we we can. I'm happy to chat with you about anything because we just have great conversations. But your your talk that you gave at the um, International Congress um, was really one of the best lectures for me personally. Just watching it that I've I've seen in years. Um, and I think the reason that it resonates with me is that you know you're working the field of abduction slash encounter, but you're doing it in a in really original ways. Um. Well, you know what it is. I'll yeah. tell you quite honestly. It is my yeah. own self-examination. I mean, I am. It is. It is. You know, this this you know book That's project and the yeah. yeah it is. I mean, I am. I am. You know, trying to answer my own questions. My you right. know, d- deep, deep, deep. And then the the. Uh, I don't know if you noticed it, but right near the end, I mean, there was a point. I mean, that's funny. I can totally see it. It's within the last minute or so. I I was so close to tearing up. Um, and it was. We well, held it together very well, and and it was not immediately evident well you can kind of see it if you just know right when to watch you can and i and i'm i'm very aware of it but uh but there you know like basically at the end i had to say like i am different now i've realized now that i am a ufo abductee and and i hate that word and i wish there was another word and but um but but and it came to me through the you know through that I mean, it took almost 25 minutes to tell how I came to terms with that through, you know, all the stuff with the map and the convoluted stuff right. with, you know, multiple places and sightings. And so so here's something I didn't get to share in the talk. So Natasha, right? So there's a mm-hmm. line on the map, one, two, three points on the map. Um, right. The, the two easternmost points, Natasha was at both of those points. The third one, March 10th. Yes. That was the one that took place in southern Utah on March 10th. Uh, March 10th, 2013. Yep. Yeah, March tenth is Natasha's birthday. <laughs> this, I mean, to do this story correctly, like I had to cut out so much. I had to trim back and trim back. There's so many odd synchronicities that I, sh- you know, that that to tell the story correctly, 
you know, would take three hours basically because there's so much strange well, stuff. And let me that, tell you. Oh, I'm sorry. Good. Oh, no, no. I'm, that's just my sense at this point. The more convoluted, the more complicated, the more – like the more a, the spider webs go everywhere, the more I trust it. There is a deep symbolism to uh, some of these experiences that's going on, really deep. So I'll just tell you. I have a, I have a very close friend, a uh, Canadian woman. I have known her since shortly after her own – she had a, a triangle UFO experience in uh, Kingston, Ontario – in January 2003. And at that time, I was doing research on triangular UFO phenomena. I was writing an article on it. And I saw this case uh, on uh, Davenport's website, the National UFO Reporting Center. It was a hell of a case. And she, she's an artist, a graphic artist, so she did a, a rendi- rendering of her sighting, and it was really well done. And I thought, wow, Kingston, Ontario is really not that far from where I live. I mean, I'm in Rochester, New York, on the other side of the lake. So I wrote to Peter and I said, can you ask this witness if I can, if I can write to her or if she would give me her email? Because I, you know, I have to ask permission, obviously. So she wrote back to him and she said, yeah, that's fine. So I got in touch with her and uh, long story short, she and I became very dear friends. She's one of the best friends I have in the world to this day. She's one of the most scrupulously honest, reliable uh, just good human beings that I've I've ever known. So uh, she's like, um, we're like siblings. That's how I feel with her. She's like a sister to me, even but closer even. But her experience, she's also very gifted as a psychic or clairvoyant or whatever you want to call it. She has she has unusual sensitivities. So um, she said to me that in the whole, and this was not on the website at all, but for months leading up to her sighting she was having these bizarre numerological uh, connections she would look up and you know at work she would see the clock 333 333 333 333 and then when she commented on it to work then she started seeing 444 or 222 or 111 and she said it got to this is all before her sighting she said it got to the point where it it was I mean, a really disturbing presence in her life because she really felt that someone was fucking with her. And, and that was, Some I mean, I, I say it straight up in the talk where like I, yeah. you know, like I spent the year of 2009 pretty much wondering if I had gone insane. Yeah. Because no, no, exactly. so much stuff was going right. on. So, um, right. I totally understand that. So when she gets to her sighting, which was, uh, I think it was January 24, 2003. Now she does astrology and numerology and I'm, I don't. I don't really have uh, a, a true understanding of those disciplines. But she explained to me, and I was really not able truly to grasp, but I'm, I'm going to ask her again. I'm, I'm going to make her explain this to me so I understand what she's talking about. But she has told me that when she looks at the astrological significance of the day of her sighting, that 333 comes up. Like it's the, – the meaning of it is 333. She goes through this long, involved process of explaining it to me. She says, you have to understand this never comes up, but it came up on that day. So in other words, what she's implying, obviously, is that there is this intelligence that was speaking to her all those months before leading up to her event. And then 
Shazam, here's the event, and here it is. We're showing it to you. Can you put the pieces together? Just like you were talking about in your lecture. You were, you were th- thinking, and I think you're right, these intelligences gave to you and you alone the series of clues that only you could get. No one yep. else in the world could get Yes, those that's clues. very much my sense. Right. And it makes per- – I mean when you explained it, how could anyone not believe you? Your proficiency with maps, loving to sleep outside, um, and everything else that you talked about really was designed for you to be the Sherlock Holmes and figure this out. And just like my friend Deb, same thing. She was given a certain number of clues, and I think it's very few other people. Like I would not have been able to figure those clues out you know, had they been given to me because I, I can't do the numerology or the astrology. But she somehow – was able to do it. So she was given these clues and she figured something out. So that there's this meta intelligence, this intelligence beyond what we have. And again, that doesn't operate at our surface layer of consciousness. Our, our logic does not apply to these, these intelligences. They're not operating that way. They have a completely different way of thinking. And I, I haven't figured this out. I don't know how they think. Well, they you don't won't know. Like don't do. try because you won't, you won't solve it. No. But, I mean, so, but, but, but just, but just you can say like that they have a different form of thinking. Yeah. Right. So which makes communication with, with them and us to be really problematic. And, and it seems to me that they can operate enough in our world that they can give us certain kinds of clues. And also think of it this way. Think about mythology. In, um, in ancient Greek mythology, uh, Zeus could not appear to ordinary mortals in his full glory because because you would die and neither could god in in the old testament absolutely yeah so 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 think of these other beings they they cannot appear to us they cannot give us the full force the full power of their intellect or of their being or of their whatever it is that they do it's disruptive to us it disrupts our patterns of thinking we cannot handle it so how do they communicate with us? It has to be through indirection, through clues, through metaphor, little, through mythology, exactly. through, through through ways that we can absorb it. Otherwise, we we would burn up and die, just like like you know the ancients with, in face of their god. I think that we're we're not able to deal with them in any other way other than through little piecemeal. Now this is where I get the. This is where. Like for instance, uh, like Eisenhower meeting the aliens in in uh, uh, what was it? Um, you know, supposedly nineteen fifty four. Yeah. Right, right. Now, to me, that's like that doesn't make any sense because everyone I've ever talked to who has interacted or been in the same like right. you know like who anyway like basically it's it's like you're the, the you you just crumble in the face of 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 these entities unless you are in another realm or in an alternate you know an alternate state of consciousness well, very, very common you know the ufo yeah. abductees will report you know like oh you know like yeah. when, when i was on the ship it was you know i had this weird headspace and you know then i was you know it was a uh, you know more real than real it was hyper vivid it was weirdly quiet so they're describing like a non-ordinary reality and that's how they can interact with these beings to think that someone could, like, you know, President Eisenhower could sit down at a conference table, it, it just is folly to me. I don't see it happening. Well, I what if it, what if it goes out like this? I mean, um, there's a lot of different possibilities that we might be dealing with. Um, one is that these, that some of these beings are completely artificially created entities. I think, I think the the ones that we encounter physically, in all likelihood, could be a combination of genetically designed, artificially intelligent, uh, nanotech created, and 3D organic printing of whatever. I, 
I mean, we're, we're maybe a century or less away from being able to 3D print an intelligent organism. Honestly, we could be that close. So is it really outrageous to think that um, some of the variety that people are seeing with these other creatures, I mean, that they're totally artificially created, whether it's through organic 3D printing or something else, who knows? They're grown, I don't know. But it could be that they're developed specifically so that they can interact with people in a way that's maybe less freaky. I'm and, only speculating. And, and I'm just, no. It's all speculation, but yeah, that's, yeah, I mean, I just want to sort of amend what I just said earlier where, uh, you know, this could be the, the, the hybrid project that people talk about. You know, it could be just a halfway point so that, the, so that we could somehow interact with them. Um, you know, and then, you know, and also right, there's plenty right. of stories where right. people say that, you know, like, oh, they met like a, you know, uh, what seemed to be an alien person, you know, wherever, like at the, literally like in the department store. Um, and then, and then, you know, it wasn't so freaky, but there was definitely something amiss about them. So, so I'm in a way, I'm sort of taking back the bold, bold, bold statements I was making about it being impossible for president Eisenhower to meet, uh, you know, sit at a conference table with an alien, you know, but, um, well, what we're dealing with are, are two specific types of phenomena. It seems to me we've got this very, uh, physical measurable phenomenon that, that, um, is what drew me into this field 20 years ago. It was, um, you know, looking at documents and looking at military and radar trackings and visuals and attempted jet interceptions and all of that stuff, which is, uh, in my view, it's totally real. And it involves what appears to be someone's technology. I don't, I've never had a reason to deny or doubt that. Yes, the nuts and bolts side of the whole problem. Absolutely. Yeah. But there's this high strangeness aspect of it. I think that's as good a term as any, uh, where it involves this um, a le- level of intelligence. I don't want to say a level of reality, a, a type of intelligence that is so foreign to us that we can't relate to it. And that for that reason, when we interact with it, 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 um, it involves, I guess, a different part of our mind you know it involves a different somehow they can get deeper into our mind than we normally can get ourselves that's a perfect way to put it yeah and that, that you know the same way that like a i mean i'm going to use a you know an analogy here the same way that uh, you know the computer technician the guy who really knows how your computer works he can just go zip 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 and then you know find these little things internally on your computer that i could never find you know right 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 yeah so man Hey, so here let's let's uh, begin the. Oh, so what I may do is just tack this onto the end. Uh, oh, please, you have to include this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, no, I, we got rolling all of a sudden. We were on, we we're both drinking coffee, I think. So, um, yeah. So I'll take tack this onto the end, and then we can start Good. the formal interview. And here's I started the same every t- way. I do the same thing. Great. So, Rich, thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Mike, it's it's my pleasure. Absolutely, so glad to be able to do this. Great. Hey, um. So here we uh I this is this is the first question on my list here. What you are about to hear is an 11 minute and 21 second excerpt from a book on tape. This is Slaughterhouse 5 by Kurt Vonnegut published in 1969. This little excerpt is narrated by Jose Ferrar, uh, who has a glorious voice. Uh, just astounding, beautiful voice. And that uh, that certainly adds to the charm of this little clip. And what you'll hear is a short set of segments uh, where Kurt Vonnegut plays with the ideas of time travel. Uh, the excerpts are a little bit snipped apart and then snipped back together, which I think is 
fine, I guess, given that the entire story is snipped apart and snipped back together with uh, Billy Pilgrim's time slips. And I very much wanted to include this because both Rich and I talked about this book. Now, Rich and I are pretty much the same age, and he talked about reading this book as a teenager. And let me tell you, every teenage boy in America in the 1970s read this book. That is a truism. So here are Kurt Vonnegut's words and Jose Ferrar's fabulous voice. Please enjoy. And Billy zoomed back in time to his infancy. He was a baby who had just been bathed by his mother. Now his mother wrapped him in a towel, carried him into a rosy room that was filled with sunshine. She unwrapped him, laid him on the tickling towel, powdered him between his legs, joked with him, patted his little jelly belly. Her palm on his little jelly belly made potching sounds. Billy gurgled and cooed. And then Billy was aboard a flying saucer, which was bound for Tralfamador. Where am I, said Billy Pilgrim. Trapped in another blob of amber, Mr. Pilgrim. We are where we have to be just now. Three hundred million miles from Earth. Bound for a time warp which will get us to Tralfamador in hours rather than centuries. How? How did I get here? It would take another Earthling to explain it to you. Earthlings are the great explainers, explaining why this event is structured as it is, telling how other events may be achieved or avoided. I am a Tralfamadorian, seeing all time as you might see a stretch of rocky mountains. All time is all time. It does not change. It does not lend itself to warnings or explanations. It simply is. Take it moment by moment, and you will find that we are all, as I've said before, bugs in amber. You sound to me as though you don't believe in free will, said Billy Pilgrim. If I hadn't spent so much time studying earthlings, said the Tralfamadorian, I wouldn't have any idea what was meant by free will. I've visited 31 inhabited planets in the universe, and I have studied reports on 100 more. Only on Earth, is there any talk of free will? Billy asked for something to read on the trip to Tralfamador. His captors had only one actual book in English, which would be placed in a Tralfamadorian museum. It was Valley of the Dolls by Jacqueline Suzanne. Billy read it, thought it was pretty good in spots. The people in it certainly had their ups and downs, ups and downs. And Billy traveled in time to the zoo on Tralfamador. He was 44 years old, on display under a geodesic dome. He was reclining on the lounge chair, which had been his cradle during his trip through space. He was naked. 
The Tralfamadorians were interested in his body, all of it. There were thousands of them outside, holding up their little hands so that their eyes could see him. Billy had been on Tralfamador for six earthling months now. He was used to the crowd. Escape was out of the question. The atmosphere outside the dome was cyanide, and Earth was 446, 120 million, million miles away. Billy was displayed there in the zoo in a simulated earthling habitat. Most of the furnishings had been stolen from the Sears and Roebuck warehouse in Iowa City, Iowa. There was a color television set and a couch that could be converted into a bed. There were end tables with lamps and ashtrays on them by the couch. There was a home bar and two stools. There was a little pool table. There was wall-to-wall carpeting in federal gold, except in the kitchen and bathroom areas and over the iron manhole cover in the center of the floor. There were magazines arranged in a fan on the coffee table in front of the couch. There was a stereophonic phonograph. The phonograph worked. The television didn't. There was a picture of one cowboy killing another one pasted to the television tube. So it goes. He showered after his exercises and trimmed his toenails. He shaved and sprayed deodorant under his arms while a zoo guide on a raised platform outside explained what Billy was doing and why. The guide was lecturing telepathically, simply standing there, sending out thought waves to the crowd. On the platform with him was the little keyboard instrument with which he would relay questions to Billy from the crowd. Now the first question came from the speaker on the television set. Are you happy here? About as happy as I was on Earth, said Billy Pilgrim, which was true. There was a lot that Billy said that was gibberish to the Tralfamadorians, too. They couldn't imagine what time looked like to him. Billy had given up on explaining that. The guide outside had to explain as best he could. The guide invited the crowd to imagine that they were looking across a desert at a mountain range on a day that was twinkling bright and clear. They could look at a peak or a bird or a cloud, at a stone right in front of them, or even down into a canyon behind them. But among them was this poor earthling, and his head was encased in a steel sphere which he could never take off. There was only one eye hole through which he could look, and welded to that eye hole were six feet of pipe. This was only the beginning of Billy's miseries in the metaphor. He was also strapped to a steel lattice which was bolted to a flat car on rails and there was no way he could turn his head or touch the pipe. The far end of the pipe rested on a bipod which was also bolted to the flat car. All Billy could see was the dot at the end of the pipe. He didn't know he was on the flat car, didn't even know there was anything peculiar about his situation. The flat car sometimes crept, sometimes went extremely fast often stopped, went uphill, downhill, round curves, along straightaways. Whatever poor Billy saw through the pipe, he had no choice but to say to himself, that's life. Billy expected the Tralfamadorians to be baffled and alarmed by all the wars and other forms of murder on Earth. He expected them to fear that the earthling combination of ferocity and spectacular weaponry might eventually destroy part or maybe all of the innocent universe. Science fiction had led him to expect that. 
But the subject of war never came up until Billy brought it up himself. Somebody in the zoo crowd asked him through the lecturer what the most valuable thing he had learned on Tralfamador was so far, and Billy replied, how the inhabitants of a whole planet can live in peace. So tell me the secret so I can take it back to Earth and save us all. How can a planet live at peace? Billy was baffled when he saw the Tralfamadorians close their little hands on their eyes. He knew from past experience what this meant. He was being stupid. Would, would you mind telling me, he said to the guide, much deflated, what was so stupid about that? We know how the universe ends, said the guide, and Earth has nothing to do with it except that it gets wiped out too. How... How does the universe end, said Billy? We blow it up, experimenting with new fuels for our flying saucers. A Tralfamadorian test pilot presses a starter button, and the whole universe disappears. So it goes. If you know this, said Billy, isn't there some way you can prevent it? Can't you keep the pilot from pressing the button? He has always pressed it, and he always will. We always let him, and we always will let him. The moment is structured that way. So, said Billy grobingly, I suppose that the idea of preventing war on earth is stupid, too. Of course. But you do have a peaceful planet here. Today we do. On other days we have wars as horrible as any you've ever seen or read about. There isn't anything we can do about them, so we simply don't look at them. We ignore them. We spend eternity looking at pleasant moments, like today at the zoo. Isn't this a nice moment? Yes. That's one thing earthlings might learn to do if they tried hard enough. Ignore the awful times and concentrate on the good ones. Hmm, said Billy Pilgrim. <laughs>